not beat me. <laughs> Avengers Assemble! Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Hiya folks, Maury Clawhammer here, welcoming you to Two True Freaks, hours and hours of class. And uh, I'm Chris Honeywell. (laughs) And I'm Scott Gardner. And it's Comics Monthly Monday number 20. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, a nice round number. And uh, I'm looking forward to this episode, we got all kinds of fun stuff um, I guess there's a lot of new stuff we got. We got our uh, new segment, and uh, the Swamp Thing is almost like going into a new comic it altogether is. with a new writer. But uh, mm-hmm. before we tackle any of that, actually, in an odd twist for Comics Monthly Monday, I'm the guy who sort of got a little bit of news at the beginning, and you got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> I'm a disgrace <coughs> to Comics Monthly Monday. You are a disgrace. You're I worthless am. and weak. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Sorry. Okay. No, I'll get no skinny more. now. <laughs> okay, good Good luck with that. It's funny, though, that, that uh, since we're talking about eating, I'm getting a new comic. I'm buying a new month-to-month comic. Um, it's called Sweet Tooth by Jeff Lemire. Lemire, L-E-M-I-R-E. It's in Vertigo. It's great. It's a post-apocalyptic story um, with where most people have died off of some disease, but the 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 newer generations of kids are sort of like animal hybrids, and they're immune to the disease. And it's very you know dark. post-apocalyptic but sort of unlike the walking dead it's very kind of uh um dreamy and more you know fantastical a little bit it's still realistic but it's got a little more dreamy quality to it that i really like uh i i found it because they put out a trade paperback of the first six issues 
or I think it was the first five issues or, or whatever, and I, I was looking through the trade, and as soon as I flipped it open and started going through it, I was like, you know, I, I can tell I'm really going to like this. I can tell this has something going with it. So I went over into the stands, and they had all, like, the first nine issues of it in there, so I bought the first five Oh, so of it's them. something that's been around for a while. It's been then. around for about a it's It's up to issue number nine or ten now. So it's been around for almost a year, probably. Huh. Um, well, let's see. I've got number five, and that says March of 2010. So that came out a few months ago because they're always yeah. ahead a little bit. But um, but it's it's still coming out. It's really good. And uh, I'm sort of happy to have something, something that I can look forward to getting a new issue of every month. And I'm sort of glad that I caught it. I was able to catch the back issues, even though it's a little more expensive. I like having the floppies over having the the trade paperback. Yeah, I'm still not crazy about trades. Although, strangely, I've been buying the uh, the Dark Horse Star Wars stuff in trades as much as I can find it. But I'm, I'm only really doing that because the, the single issues in the back issue market, they're ridiculous, man. I, I, I don't know what it is. It's like I see these single issues all the time on, like, eBay for, like, six, seven, eight bucks for a single issue. But then you look at the trade that contains the issue. You can get the entire trade with several more issues and stories in there for, like, five bucks. Right, right. I don't think I've paid more than five bucks for any Star Wars trade, no matter how thick or thin it was. So it's really odd. But I'm loving that I guess that they're stuff. just not as collectible or, or whatever. I guess. Um, I don't so how, how's the art in this book? It's good. It's very... It's. I don't want to say simplistic, but it's very, um, it's, it's not very detailed. It's very kind of sketchy, very bit. It's, um, you know, thick, thick brushwork, you know, of the like inks out. It's very, um, who would you compare it to that I, that I might know just to get an idea visually of what it, what it looks like. I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. It's got a very indie feel to it, you know? Um, oh, okay. It's not that different, I guess. I would say it's almost a little bit like The Walking Dead. If you gave it a little more sketchy western sort of look, do you know what I mean? That sort of uh, woodcut uh-huh. look to it. But okay, yeah, I've got it, a good it, visual now. Because, yeah, you're right. A lot of a lot of um, independent stuff seems to have that, that kind of look to it, I think. It's not as detailed as The Walking Dead because it's in color, and I think they do a lot with the, the color of it. It's very moodily color, colored, and uh, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a very good, re- you know, I, I just bought the first five issues, brought them home, and tore right through them, and I was almost ready to... You know, I was looking to see what time it is because I was like, I might be able to make it back to the comic shop and uh, <laughs> get the next four issues of this because I definitely want to see what's happening. And it's funny that the two comics that I'm getting month by month are post-apocalyptic, <laughs> both <laughs> both post-humanity shows. Well, how those much have been I some of the people. better. Those have been some of the better comics, though. Really, is the I think the it's ones one of my place. preferred genres. I think it's just a great genre to play out a lot of things in. You know, there's a lot of possibilities and a lot of things you can can explore mm-hmm. in that sort of of world that you know, and and still have it pertain to our world too. You know. Oh so, yeah. So that's it's just one of my favorite 
type of genre. I guess it's a genre. And the other yeah. news, I have even more news that I'm even more excited about. <gasps> the Two True Freaks t-shirts. Yes. They, by the time you're listening to this, they should be here. Um, I haven't picked them up yet <laughs> as we're recording this, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, uh, but, it, you know, if if they don't come out, you won't even hear this because I'll clip it out by <laughs> that time. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to it. It's a, it's a sort of, it's two true freaks and the sort of Kenner, it's the, I, I think it was sort of the Kenner Star Wars logo when Empire Strikes Back came out. Yeah. When they started yeah. doing Empire Strikes Back toys, which is a very sort of, you know, it looked like it was a shiny chrome, big fat Star Wars it yeah. looked like the Star Wars Empire Strikes Back logo, but fattened up. And yep. so that's our Two True Freaks logo, and I've got it in a snazzy silver with, uh, you know, simulated reflections. So it looks like it's, you know, real uh, chrome. Not really shiny silver, but the way the silver and the white ink in it makes it look like it's reflective i'm really it reminds happy me a lot it. of of an empire strikes back t-shirt i had right around you know 1980 1981 that i just wore completely to death because that was black and it had that logo you're talking about in inside the, but it was one of those stretched out logos to where there was actually a picture inside of it right right and it was it was the classic poster you know the han kiss and leia and you know the droids in the background on the snowy hoth and all that you know the that classic empire poster and i wore that t-shirt out so i'm i'm really looking forward to this well, i'm hoping yeah i'm hoping there's going to be people wearing their tutu freak freak t-shirts out yeah absolutely absolutely we need the uh we need the promotion we need the the pimpage yeah. and and they're awesome, you know. They'll be awesome T-shirts, you know. Well, I, and, uh, well, I, I made sure I wanted to get them silk screened. I didn't want to have them some sort of iron-on technology or print-on computer technology or anything. You know, I wanted them yeah. to be something that's going to last on a real, you know, commercial brand T-shirt, all hundred percent cotton T-shirt. You know, none of the sort of cheap-out stuff that you can do, which, you know. Personally, I'd like to sell them for like five bucks a piece, but you know, being an old fart, that's what I remember. You know, <laughs> being able to get T-shirts for five, ten bucks. But I think I'm, I think I'm gonna, I think from to, if I want to sort of get in the, in the ballpark of breaking even on it, you know, uh, I, I think they're gonna go for like fifteen bucks, which will get you a postage and everything like that, you know. So that'll get it delivered to you, and. um We'll, 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 um, the best thing to do right now is, uh, email us at two true freaks at gmail.com. And, uh, mm -hmm. by that, by that time, maybe we'll have a, fi uh, a efficient way of figuring out how we can get it to you. But, you know, uh, if, if you're interested, we got small, medium, large, and extra large. No extra, extra large because they were god awful expensive to get made <laughs> and i just couldn't afford it and i don't and i would feel bad for what i'd have to you know it would raise the price of all the t-shirts so i so it was sort of a compromise but if there's a big demand for them if we can recoup these ones we'll maybe i'll get some extra 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 large made 
next time or extra 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 large or quadruple you know some <laughs> super larger size this is for our super now now you've got size. me wondering what our largest listener is i'm just I curious think we about should that. Wait till we i don't have know more that that's listeners. a distinction huh when we have more listeners maybe we can have a contest yeah, I don't know that that's a distinction that somebody would actually want to to have. Well, I, mean, I don't know. There's you know, some you people never who know are them. proud. There's some people who wear it proud. Hey, you know the 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 it, the the guy. Let's hope it's a guy who wins. Might be like nine feet tall. You know, he might be skinny. Right, right. <laughs> Just way. Well, there's a, a yeah. There's ton. there's ways to wear it. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you're you know you're you're built like a like a brick wall and you know you wear it well. But I'm talking about you know if whoa, it's the guy whoa, who whoa, has whoa, to you whoa, know who will end up being airlifted out of his house one day to right, they have to the hospital. That's completely different. I don't want to encourage that sort of silliness. <laughs> yeah, here at Two True Freaks, we do not encourage morbid obesity. Right. Exactly. But we do love our cheeseburgers. <laughs> Deep fried. Yeah. We were watching we were watching some show the other night, my wife and I, and uh, somebody was talking about having a deep fried Coke. And I was just like, what the I've, hell is a deep fried? How do you deep fry a Coke? I don't get that at all. I don't understand. Somebody told me how they did it, and it's it's stupid. It's just a yeah, it's, it's novelty. Stupid. It's a not where it's uh, obviously America is going through some sort of like, let's see what we can deep fry phase. And I blame you. Don't watch The Simpsons, but there was like, uh, you know, those uh, those episodes of Simpsons are like Seinfeld. You know, people watch them over and over again. And there's an episode where the bartender turns his bar into like, you know, a TGI Fridays or one of those chain restaurants, and right. they just and they just have this industrial um, deep fryer and they're deep frying everything. You know, just taking the whole platter with the plates and everything and dunking it in the deep fryer well see that happens here you know in the in the deep south that you know you get these drunken rednecks and they just sit around in their yard and it's like hey look it's a dog it's a rat yeah Yeah. Yeah, it's a rat deep fry the rat and it's like jesus you know but plus what i blame it on more than anything is these reports come out you know america is now the most obese nation in the world it's Hell yeah, we're number one. <laughs> yeah, it's something we're number one in recently, so we're, yeah, we're and it's grabbing like, no, no, onto no, no, it. You're missing, you're missing the point here. America is the stupidest nation. Hell yeah, we're number one. <laughs> Burn the book, deep fry the books. <laughs> it's like what's oh. this chalker? Chalker, chalker up to being good in my belly. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Oh my God! Canterbury Tales. Well, we Canterbury it in the backyard, so let's just eat it. Woo-hoo-hoo! <laughs> oh, that's right. Literate humor on two true freaks. Well, you know the literate meets the redneck. This is the thing for me is that it, it really is getting to a point where I, you know I was reading. I want to say this though. I'll bet you we have a lot of literate redneck friends. So. You know, we don't want to typecast rednecks as being all stupid. There are well-read rednecks. There there are, and I, I don't want to seem like a complete hater when it comes to rednecks. However, <laughs> you know, as, as we'll come up here toward the end of the episode when we get to our Walking Dead segment, you know, I was reading one of the issues that we're going to cover tonight, and there was a sign that they pass in there. And I got to thinking, damn, that's not far from my house. 
And when I first discovered The Walking Dead, we were living in a different place than we live now. And we were pretty far out in the boonies, you know, down this this kind of creepy road, you know, toward the end of this kind of creepy road, kind of isolated. And at the time, I was working a lot of like really late at night or really early in the morning types of shifts. So I'd be getting up, going outside when like the rest of the world was asleep. It was, you know, like completely pitch black dark and it was kind of creepy, you know. Uh-huh. And this is you know, right, like right when I'm getting into Walking Dead, which is taking place literally like in my backyard in the story, you know, and it would kind of freak me out a little bit, you know, just that thought that, you know, of these of these zombies. And I have this just weird thing about like the zombie apocalypse anyway. But <laughs> as time has worn on and, and, and everything and, you know, the whole zombie craze, you know, depending on who you listen to, some people say it's winding up. Some people say it's winding down. A lot of people are kind of waiting to see what's going to be, you know, the, the new zombie. Dead TV show does. That's what I'm yeah. going to say. That could be a big shot in the arm. But, you know, every once in a while you'll hear somebody say something like pirates. Pirates are the new zombies or, you know, I don't know, something stupid, you know, fairy princesses. Fairy princesses are the new zombies. What I want to see be the new zombies is rednecks. That That's the next thing, you know, like zombie apocalypse is now like in the lexicon. Well, but well, I want to see like redneck apocalypse become well, redneck, part of our lexicon. Redneck is a horror genre that comes around every once in a while. You know, it has its heyday. It had a, it had a big heyday in the 70s with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the, the classic of all times um deliverance you know the one mm-hmm. that made the one that made dueling banjos synonymous with redneck inbred rednecks and right. and and rednecks being like horrible like rapists <laughs> you know so that that it, it it has a and in the 80s it came back there was a little a little slew of of bad redneck movies i think southern comfort was one of the standouts of that so it's yeah it's uh Right now, actually, there's a horror movie that's sort of coming up that has um, the rednecks as the protagonists. It has a bunch <laughs> of spoiled, like, college kids out in the woods. And some somehow they decide, you know, they decide to off the rednecks because they're stupid, inbred rednecks. And, you know, the movie is on the side of the rednecks. And, and they're also portrayed as not being... As human characters, as you know, not being just stupid, inbred, possum-eaten rednecks. <laughs> so maybe they'll be in. You know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm with you on that, but I have a feeling it's going to be more of like a redneck chic <laughs> thing oh that God. comes back, where it's you know, it it had uh, maybe it's over because maybe it had its um, you know, hide it, you know, with fucking get her done and yeah. that whole crew. Yeah. But, you know, where it's like, I'm proud to be stupid, ignorant, and lazy. And yeah, that's that's the thing, you know. Let's is all that... laugh about how ignorant we are. Right. I mean, I you know, at one time I was very proud to be a, a Jeff Foxworthy fan when he was first coming up. And as a matter of fact, I mean, my wife and I went so far as we actually went to one of his concerts in uh, in Atlanta and enjoyed ourselves. You know, I mean, it was a hell of a good time, but... Again, it's that thing like the news reports I was talking about before. It, I don't think it's something I, I don't I could be completely dead wrong on this, but I never got the impression that that Jeff Foxworthy 
was making those jokes and making that shtick as something that it was great to follow and emulate. He was pointing out, you know, the the inherent whatever you know right. that you know the uncomfortable truths of uh, you know the of the stereotype or whatever and people adopted that like okay that's what i want to be and i'm like no 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 <laughs> i think you're missing the, audience, the point the here. audience never gets it with that stuff it was like right. um it was like in the 80s with um ronald reagan and um what's his name bruce springsteen bruce springsteen wrote born in the usa which was about a you know, a pissed off Vietnam vet who was just like, my country's treated me like shit, you know, is basically right. what the song was about. And, you know, and well, I I shouldn't say just Ronald Reagan, but Ronald Reagan and the whole country grabbed onto it as an anthem. Right. USA, you know, and they would play it as a theme song. And it's like, do you guys know that you're playing this horribly critical song of about war in our government and using it for you know right yeah you know to pump people up to for a wrestling match it was just bizarre you know that yeah and, and and i don't think it was like a brilliant like a brilliant taking over of it and turning it to their side let's take this song and turn it on its ear and use it for our advantage i think they just didn't get, were like just heard the title of the song the well, i will you know profess... the, the chorus and didn't really listen to the the lyrics to it you know See, I will profess to be one of those people, not not that I was chanting the anthem, but uh, that didn't understand the song because those four words, born in the USA, yeah, four words are the only part of that song I can make heads or tails of because Bruce Springsteen is another one of those singers in a long line of singers Bow like down, they, oh yeah, Brian Adams is a perfect example to me. Not only are they completely unintelligible, they sound like they are sitting on the on the can, completely yeah. bound up while they're singing. Think, it's like I think Bob oh, Seger it's started. It's like, um, it's like, I know. What are you saying? And that whole style of singing has been taken to heart as being earnest, and the, that's what ruined the whole grunge movement. <laughs> earnest saves <for> Christmas. <laughs> hey Vern, listen to me <laughs> sing this song. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for uh, ruining my point, man, by making it I'm into sorry. fucking earnest. <laughs> I miss him, by the way. I really yeah. do. I wonder what they're going to do for Slinky Dog in uh, See, Toy you gotta Story. watch. you got to watch Simpsons because when he was on Simpsons, he was on a Simpsons episode, and it's one of the funniest things ever. He plays a carny. He was a and, very funny guy, yeah. and it's it's... You know, while I enjoyed the Ernest character, it's also a little. I bit enjoyed sad. the Ernest character. I didn't enjoy the Ernest movies, but damn, no, he made stupid. a he made a great Jed Clampett though. He was an awesome well, Jed Clampett. I'm trying to remember if it was before high school, you know, before graduation or after graduation. But I ended up finding a whole bunch of video collections of all of his commercials. The commercials yeah. are what made well, him famous they, as Ernest and they are friggin' hilarious, well, man. Well, they used to have, they used to have shows every once in a while like the best of commercials. And yeah. then you used to have like entertainment tonight type shows would show like you know four really funny commercials and he got picked up in that whole thing cuz his commercials were just great and it was like I believe just a local 
plates. Yeah. I can't even remember what it was for, but yeah, it was, it was something all, stupid. It was yeah. It was all it was all from the point of view of the character Vern. You know, the camera was Vern, and he would just be talking to, "Hey, Vern, blah 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 blah," right. and it was yeah. just they were just hilarious. And he was just a local, you know, small yokel. town, you know, like a like a Danny Burgess or somebody. Yeah. He was just a small local celebrity that you know the people that lived wherever the hell he lived knew who he was. And he made commercials. I don't think he was isolated to any one thing because he did commercials for like banks and, you know, the local, you know, car dealership or whatever. And then it got bigger. Then it became like Sprite and stuff like that and Mellow Yellow. And then the next thing you know, he's making movies. And But he was just, you know, he was just a guy that could do a, a, a hilarious character. And he wasn't even like that in real life. I mean, if you ever saw interviews with him, he was like a classically shakespearean trained actor that you know and had all this you know background he wasn't a redneck he didn't talk with a southern drawl or anything but he had created this character and that's you know what he went down as in history i think that's pretty cool really but uh i miss yeah. that guy he was he was more much American more talented success story yeah absolutely much well, more talented than he ever got credit for yeah well anyway yeah all those all those fucking grunge singers sang like him and it pissed me off <laughs> I'm a serious singer. Oh. Blunk. <laughs> anyway, before we digress too much, we've got our important new segment to get to. And I think we should just unleash it in a fury of its theme song and beginning right now, so... Here you go, guys. The brand new Comics Monthly Monday segment. Canadian. Artist. Inker. Scripter. Writer, author, creator, legend, God. God. A man feared and hated by the world he has sworn to draw. He is the most controversial comics figure of all. Stan Lee presents The Jocular John Byrne. All right. We're, here we are, the, the beginning of our massive, comprehensive Byrne coverage. And I'm going to pass this right off to Scott, and he'll tell you, what's happening, man? <laughs> well, first of all, before we get into uh, the uh, issue proper that we will be reviewing, uh, I just wanted to spend a minute, you know, just you and I talking, and uh, just kind of cover briefly, why John Byrne? Why, why exactly did we choose this, you know, this person, these comics, that sort of thing, so... Why did we decide on John Byrne? Well, it was one thing. It was something that we both liked. I mean, when we both mm -hmm. started getting into comics, the comics of that time, he was the shit. And yep. it was, and he's about the time that, I mean, literally, this comic is for, that we're going to cover today is from 1977. That we can pinpoint that as the year you and I started buying comics because that's when Star Wars comics came out. Yep. So and he's just starting to come up as a, you know, an up and coming 
hot artist in, in Marvel. So when he was coming up, we were just getting into it. So, I mean, yeah, it's just a natural. And his art is beautiful. I just love his art. It is. I it mean, is. To, to somebody who's grown up with more modern comics, it might not be as spectacular as it was when it first came out because it's just much copied to the point of where it's almost become sort of the a template you know there's a lot yes. of people who don't draw like burn but they draw with the level of reality that burn drew with and or they draw fluidity. off of the trail that he that he blazed that he even blazed. if they don't necessarily draw in his style they draw off his uh off his knowledge if you know what i mean or draw off you know the the like i say the the trail that he blazed absolutely so so you know this is this is just a good opportunity to sort of you cover this stuff from where it started you know and and also it's as i learned this month it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun to read all these comics i mean bottom line is it's going to be fun to go back and read all this stuff I can't yeah. wait to get to the Fantastic Four. Yes. I just yes, started absolutely. remembering how much I love that Fantastic Four run that he had. Um, for me, it's it's really just a couple of things. Um, it, a large part of it is what you said, that starting with what we're starting with right here, 1977 was a huge year for us. Because not only was there Star Wars, there was a lot of other really cool stuff going on in 77, but also you and I met in 77. So that means a lot to me, you know, sentimentally, this is really, this is going all the way back to the beginnings of our friendship. So that that's kind of cool to kind of re-examine it that way. Also, and I don't want this to come off the wrong way. I don't want it to come off as I'm being haughty or anything like that. But a large reason for me of why, rather than picking a title, or a, a team or a character to follow or whatever, why John Byrne specifically is, is the what we're following with this segment is that I do hear a lot of Byrne bashing going on in modern comics with, with modern um, comic collectors and comic readers, and especially um, younger readers that I just personally, I feel like they lack the perspective to appreciate who John Byrne was and who he is but mostly who he was especially back here during this period he was a god and i'm a huge burn fan even to to today and so i want to kind of be able to go back and examine a little bit what made the guy what he was because you know bigger than anybody that's that's come along since in my opinion you know whether it's your your jim lee or your uh Todd McFarlane or any hot new flavor artist or writer of the week that that has come along in the in the period since John Byrne was bigger than all of them in his heyday and so that that's really what I want to go back to is is examining you know why what, that how was. I disco- yeah why that was exactly and what what made him so great and what I found in that character and trying to rediscover that so yeah quick little uh background on burn um leading up to the book that we're going to talk about you know shortly after his uh first published work burn was a, a freelancer for charlton comics where he created um the 
backup feature for a book called E-Man that was called Raj 2000. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Some of uh, the other notable Charlton work that he did included, among other things, um, Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch, which, you know, that was, do you remember that cartoon oh, show? Oh, I sure do. Yeah, he did uh, at least one issue with that, because I, I, I know I have at least one issue with that in my collection, because at one time, I, used to I have owned a wheelie, everything. I used to have a Wheelie um, Hot Wheel. Oh, did you really? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, at one time, um, I owned every John Byrne thing I could get my hands on, you know, whether it was just, you know, some cover he did or something he inked or whatever. I, I just owned it all. So um, that one's a kind of a trip because it was a really hard book to come across. Um, he also worked on Space 1999. Um, he worked on Emergency, and that was based on the show Emergency about mm-hmm. those paramedic guys. Um, he did some work on the Flintstones. And then, uh, speaking of post-apocalyptic stuff, he uh, I believe he was co-creator, if I'm not mistaken, on a series called Doomsday Plus One. Oh, I remember Which that. I absolutely loved. Do you remember that? I remember, well, I remember it because it got reprinted at some point. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, Oh, what was it? I want to say it was like Fantagraphics or something. Yeah. Reprinted it as Doomsday Squad. And you can find those reprints dirt cheap in 50-cent boxes. I highly recommend picking them up because the, the recoloring is really, really nice. Because that was the problem with Charlton Comics is the coloring was usually crap because they, they just had a weird... I think the legend I've heard is that they were actually using a serial box printing machine to print their comics. So that's why they're all their comics look really funky when you look at them. But doomsday plus one, the basic premise was these astronauts are out in space in their rocket ship at the exact moment that the apocalypse happens. I think it's a nuclear war if I remember right. And they come back to earth and they end up hooking up with this like, caveman guy who gets thawed out because of the whatever the disaster was and he becomes like their friend so he's like the Chewbacca of the team because he doesn't talk and stuff and it was just the the adventure of this like team of misfits in the post-apocalyptic world and all the weird adventures they would have so it was, it was a little bit like Challengers of the Unknown meets like Thundar meets Planet of the Apes kind of thing and it was, it was a good book it was a hell of a lot of fun and it was very young, very hungry John Byrne knocking it out of the park. Some really great stuff. Um, his first published work for Marvel was a story in uh, 1975's Giant Size Dracula number 5, which I recently just finally got myself a copy of. Um, he went on to gain a lot of notice and popularity on titles such as The Champions, um, Iron Fist, which was a really good book, and various issues of Marvel Team Up, where that I believe it was either Marvel Team Up or Iron Fist, or maybe both at the same time, where he would actually first draw the X Men. And for many of uh, those stories, he was paired up with writer Chris Claremont, uh, with whom he'd worked on issues of Marvel Preview featuring Star Lord. And those issues were inked by Terry Austin who came to ink burn on X-Men. And that brings us pretty much up to speed on where we are at this point. And where the book we're starting in on is Burns' first issue of X-Men, retroactively known as Uncanny X-Men, number 108. And this is the December 1977 issue, cover by Dave Cockrum. 
Chris Claremont's the author, John Burns the artist, Terry Austin the inker, and it's a story entitled Armageddon Now. The issue begins and we are immediately thrown into the middle of an ongoing story, which actually is just the way I like it because it feels very old school. That's just how comics were back when we were kids. Yep. You just you, you picked, picked one up, up off the rack and yep. hit the ground running. Exactly. So the X-Men, consisting of Cyclops, Storm, Banshee, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, and the Phoenix, stand alongside with their pals, the Starjammers, upon an alien world as old as time, an unnamed alien world. According to the recap, the X-Men were sent through an alien stargate by uh, Professor Charles Xavier to simply rescue his main squeeze, Lalandra. Instead, they got embroiled in this whole big deal with her evil brother, the Emperor, and his crazy scheme to seize power from the great McCran, McCran Crystal. Man, I can't pronounce that. McCran Crystal, which is how the X-Folks wound up on this planet that they're on. Aboard Skylab, in orbit around our sun, scientist Peter Carbo tries desperately to convince President Jimmy Cotter the Avengers and the Fantastic Four of the possible imminent end of our universe as we know it and live in it. Back on the unnamed planet, while Jean Grey struggles with how she can tell Cyclops uh, who she has discovered Corsair truly is, the group is set upon by Jaff, a guardian of the gate into eternity, whatever the hell that is. And he looks a lot like a cross between a classic gray alien and one of those freaky haired troll dolls. Wolverine steps up to deal with a pipsqueak alien and is literally punched into orbit for his trouble. After a several page battle, Jaff is defeated by Banshee screaming in his face at point blank range. But there is barely time for kudos at all before they are set upon by the next guardian. This massive golden robot-looking dude named Mott. Uh, so if you picture a cross between, say, Terminus and that box guy from Alpha Flight, you've got a pretty good visual of what this uh, Mott guy looks like. So while Mott pounds on our heroes, the evil emperor, who I guess was actually in the issue the whole time, we just hadn't actually seen him up to this point, uh, he shows up, starts giving the Star Jammers a bunch of shit. And this pisses off Raza, who's one of the Jammers. And he picks up the Emperor and flings him. Is this starting to sound a little bit familiar? Flings him into the thingy that the Guardians have been trying to defend. And suddenly reality goes all wonky. Jean Grey quickly ciphers out that they are inside the McCran crystal now. So she approaches and touches this glowing sphere thingy in which, according to her, lies the heart of it all, whatever that means. So instantly, everyone is mind zapped and starts experiencing these horrible, vivid nightmare images. And Jean quickly recovers because she's already faced and conquered her greatest fear, which was death itself, when she died and was reborn as the Phoenix a few issues back. So she tries to help her boyfriend, Cyclops, but she's too late. Cyclops, who's blasting his eye beams wildly and blindly all over the place, smashes the lattice binding the sphere. So it turns out this thing is actually a neutron galaxy. And when it fully ruptures, it's going to suck the entire cosmos into itself, all black hole style, effectively ending the universe. 
and that would kind of suck. So drawing on her um, Phoenix Force, plus getting a little Life Force boost from Storm and reluctantly at first Corsair of the Starjammers, and by the way, she does reveal to him um, who Cyclops is, that he's actually his long-lost son, Scott Summers. So she dramatically and spectacularly saves all of creation by rebuilding the lattice, and that takes a lot of pages. <laughs> uh, as her reward, she and her pals are spit out of the Stargate back into good old Greenwich Village in New York City, where, for some reason I didn't really catch, Fire Lord was waiting for them along with Professor X, Jean Grey's parents, and Misty Knight. Lalandra shows up a moment later, proclaims the crisis is over, and herself a hopefully just temporary exile, and she tells Charles Xavier, baby, I'm yours. And I also notice at the bottom of the last page, we get a dedication of the book with respect and admiration to Dave Cockrum, who reminded the readers of 1977 that, quote, I'm not dead. <laughs> and I point this out because it's funny, but also it's a little bit bittersweet because now reading it, you know, present day, Dave Cockrum has unfortunately passed on. So, yeah, but it was, uh, it was neat that, you know, because it is very much written like past tense, you know. So I thought it was funny that he added that in there. And uh, so what did you think of this one, man? Well, flipping through it at first... I sort of put off reading it because I'm like, oh, God, this is so dense. We had a little email exchange where I was like, do you want to synopsize this? Because, you know, I just haven't read a superhero book like this in so long. And it looks like it's in the middle of it. I won't know what's going on. You might be able to. And you're like, sure. And then I read it. And it's like you said at the beginning. It's no problem. You just jump in and off it goes. You know, that the, the style of that time period. I got to say, it was wordy, sort of like the Swamp Things had, have been, but I didn't mm-hmm. mind it as much as the, the Swamp Things. You know, there's a lot of uh, um, not as much psycho babble as sort of cosmic babble, you know, yes. that became, that showed up in this X-Men stuff a lot. But, man, I just love, I love Burns' art. I love it. And I forgot, I always, when I think of his art th- at this time period, I always sort of picture the inking heavier than it really was it was a lot finer than i remember it and 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 it's even more detailed than i remember and i just i mean really i love his style and it has become so ingrained that you don't really notice it till you start looking at this old stuff and you know just seeing here's here's where that began i love i love the way he draws faces I love the way he draws women. Yes. But that he he just is a master of fluid motion and without it looking posed. It looks, you know, the characters are in their superhero poses, you know how whenever they appear at one place one guy'll be crouched and one person will have their arms out to the side and one person will look like they're running and uh a lot of times it can look really fake and and to, you don't notice it as much nowadays, but back in the old days, there were a lot of people who had trouble with like proportion, like body proportions yeah. and stuff like that. You, uh, what was his name? Springer always comes to mind, which yes. is funny because his name was Springer and his characters always had these long frog legs. 
which I always found <laughs> really amusing. But, you know, he would have these, ex- and I don't know if he was exaggerating them on purpose or just didn't have, you know, a, a sense of it or whatever. But, you know, Burns, everything, and, you know, it's not as a big deal nowadays because I think maybe Burns set the level of having really good draftsman skills, you know, and his yes. his buildings and the perspective on his buildings is always is always good, and you know I don't want it to sound like a technical thing because you know there's there's a style to it you know there's a flow and a movement and taking this very classical you know I mean you can see the Jack Kirby in there without it looking like Jack Kirby but you can see where he's taking his cues and even from Cockrum you know. I see a a lot of different artists. I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And, and he puts them all together in his style and uses, you know, this is, although at this time also the writing in comics was getting more like this, more of like continuing stories and stories on a cosmic scale, you know, that were supposed to be serious. And this stuff is kind of silly compared to nowadays, but this stuff was really serious compared to oh, what yes. came before it it was it was a little more you know densely written and maybe written for an older yet not too old you know i mean the the philosophy and stuff is still sort of hokey you know but i like it it's got a yoda character sort of ahead of yoda you know a little guy who judge me not by my size or i'll launch you into orbit right um yeah i just enjoyed the hell out of it i forgot about the banshee probably one of the more maybe less apparently racist characters but i i've always found him to be like you know you're right a total irish never... stereotype <laughs> i'm betting me life right. there he is using me scream you're... as an airborne sonar led me right to him you know and he's got red hair and you're it, right because he even at a, a lot of the t- i don't think he has it in this issue but a lot of the times he would be smoking one of those funny looking pipes that yeah. you see leprechauns smoking exactly. all the time and like in Lucky Charms or some damn thing. Yeah, you're absolutely I had and, never thought about that, but you're right. He was a complete stereotype. And and his I can't remember his his, you know, his real name, but it's a very, you know, just, you know, like Gushin Begora name. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. S- something O'Brien or something. Mm-hmm. I, God, I should know that too cuz I, I actually like his character a lot, believe it or not. No, I can't yeah, but he's just, just made up of all the, the race, the <laughs> the racial stereotypes of Irish people, which I guess isn't. You know, it's weird because it's not like a visceral reaction. Like if he was like a big-lipped, dumb black guy who. Well, I was just gonna say, see, he's a white something. guy, so it's okay to stereotype him. Yeah, if he was. Well, no, I think just. Other. I think the only white people that notice him being stere- well, not the only, but most of the white people that are gonna notice him being stereotyped. Our Irish people are going to go, oh, yeah, yeah. And, oh, sure, he has a green costume, too. Yeah, cool. <laughs> but in fairness, though, to a certain degree, and I'm, I'm not saying this is a harsh criticism, but I think it is just a simple truth. You know, this was um, a, a um, God, what is the word I want to use? Like internationally balanced team. Yeah, they were trying. You know, that's and, what I'm oh, yeah, they were absolutely trying, but each one of them in their own way is kind of stereotypical because, yes. you know, Storm is from, you know, she's black, so she's from Africa. Um, 
Nightcrawler is German and in a lot of ways just, you know, even though he doesn't look like, you know, an, an average white German guy, in a lot of ways he's kind of stereotypically German. Um, Peter's backstory, you know, Colossus, he's very stereotyped yes. as the, you know, the the Russian, you know, field worker type of, um, I'm trying to think, what is that word? The, shit, I'm trying to sound more educated on that than I I guess I really am, but you know what is it? it's like the proletariat, proletariat. or whatever, like yeah, the working a, class, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know that sort of thing, but but I you know that may feel a little bit weird or uncomfortable today, but at this time that was actually very, was very progressive. progressive, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and the X Men were always sort of the ones pushing that you know, like when the New Mutants came along, they. You know, they they were always the ones that were like, and and Spider Man were always the ones that were like, okay, let's do an episode about child molestation that's very serious. You know, so <laughs> you know, so they were known as being, but uh, you're right, you're absolutely right. But I and, and one thing I noticed is um, the guy in the Skylab, Peter Corbeau, Corbeau, mm-hmm. he looks just like Peter Parker. To me. Yeah, I mean, let me get back to that page. You're page probably three. right because, you know, I will grudgingly admit something that used to it used to really piss me off, and I guess I lived in denial for a long, long. Yo, come on, oh my God, you're right. He does look like Peter Parker. I've heard this criticism of Byrne a lot over the years, and and like I say, it used to really, really piss me off, and I used to just vigorously defend. But you know, I can't so vigorously defend anymore. Is that? John, a lot of John Burns people look the same. And I used to really hate it when people would say things like that. But, you know, it's sort of like saying it, a lot of common Infantino's true. people look the same. It's the yeah, he, he draws mouths and eyes. He has a style of drawing faces. Right. But I've never had any. Tr- I. You see, I remember when he did Indiana Jones. I mean, he just did Harrison yeah. Ford justice. I. I'll take a little bit of maybe his characters looking a little bit the same for the sheer expressiveness on, you know, right. The, the range of expression that he shows on people's faces and the, and the natural appearance of it, you know, and what, that's but, what know, I like. He, he makes stuff look natural while still being stylized in his style. Right. But, you know, as much as that's true that you can look at, like I'm looking at in a lot of these panels, if you look at Cyclops' mouth and jaw and yeah. everything, you can see Superman or Batman or whatever. If you look at Reed Richards, you can see Superman. Yeah. You look at a lot of the females in here from the Wasp to certain panels with Jean Grey, you can see Lois Lane and some of the other characters he worked on. So, yeah, there's that side of it. Well, his However, female body types were also very similar. They also yeah. like a lot of the females in his there wasn't much of a you know range of proportions to him. They usually had the same size bust waist butt type thing going on. Well actually I was I was thinking the opposite thing when it came to Jean Grey though because she's really not drawn as the stereotypical you know you know wafer waisted big titted you know superheroine because there's a panel here that wasn't the look it. for women in that day. In those days, it was more of a natural look, though. It was a little wider hips uh, and yeah, you, like yeah. more natural breasts, and you know, big breasts weren't a big in the seventies. weren't really 
the thing. Yeah, you're right. You're you're absolutely right. Yeah, that really didn't come along until later. Yeah, you're right. But what I was going to say though is, you know, as much as there are a lot of characters here that you can look at and go, okay, I see this other burn character or this other burn book that he would do later in there, or whatever. For as many characters there, as there are like that, then you've got guys like Colossus who has a very distinct head. You can't just take Colossus because he's got kind of a blockhead, kind of a cranium, yeah, blockhead thing going on there. And you can't just take his head and make it Batman or Superman. Same thing with Wolverine. Wolverine has kind of that, uh, that you know, uh, fighter, you know, yeah. well, you know, like a fighter that's got kind of the, you know, not cauliflower ears, but you know, just they they look like they've been around the block fighting all their life or whatever. Yeah, I don't think you can necessarily take Wolverine, you know, Burns Wolverine head and put it on say Batman or something. You know, he, so there are characters that are very distinct that aren't just, you know, off some sort of, you know, burn template. assembly line. Yeah, yeah. template. So, yeah. I, 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 never, I, I never really had a problem with that at all. I've always been a big fan of the way, like when I still have yet to get it, but, you know, his Assignment Earth comic, I can't wait to see that because I can't wait to see how John Byrne draws, you know, Terry Gar in her 20s. Very well. Very, sure. very well. I'm sure he well, you would uh, just to do that. <laughs> You mentioned earlier about his women and all that, and uh, I would highly encourage um, you to seek out, you know, anybody who's interested in burn, especially early, you know, like I say, early hungry burn, you know, when, when that's when I really feel like he was um, doing some of his best stuff. There's a book called The Art of John Byrne, and it shows Raj 2000 cornered in an alleyway by all these other um, characters that Byrne would draw. There's a lot of nudes in that, and it's just great because, you know, you, you wouldn't see that in any mainstream book, but you really see where this guy had down how people looked, you know, anatomy and, and things like that. He really had a strong sense of how people really look, how they really move and function and how they're really built as opposed to just drawing superheroes. He was drawing real people. And I think that's one of the things that really set him apart from other people working in comics at the time that were just drawing, you know, the fantastical, but they didn't have any sort of reference to the real or, or enough of it, you know. And, and Burns stuff very often feels real because of the way people move and act and, and you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what that's what got me in the first place and it was actually these very comics that, that uh were my introduction to John Byrne mm-hmm. so you know a, a friend of a friend was getting rid of his comics so I just scored like and he'd bought multiple issues of all of these for some reason now, now you were reading some of this X-Men stuff that we'll be covering rated as it was coming out right well, no, I was a little behind. I was, I, no, I actually, it was, it was after I started reading it. It was well after Dark Phoenix, because, mm-hmm. um, at that point, the dark, the Dark Phoenix saga and the this whole run was a huge, hugely in demand. They were gold. Right. They were worth their weight in gold, and. uh this guy had bought all these comics and he sold them to me for a song, you know, like my friend was like, do you want to buy these? And I'm like, sure. Ask, 
ask him what he wants, and he was like, hey, I'll take 20 bucks. And it was literally, it was a whole bunch of other comics, too, but a lot of, a lot of it was John Byrne, and it was the whole Dark Phoenix saga. It was pretty much the whole John Byrne run up until when I was reading it. So mm-hmm. I got to so I got to finally cuz I couldn't order the comics cuz they were so expensive, you know, I couldn't actually get them to read them. And then this was in the days before trade paperbacks, so you were just sort of out of luck. So I finally got to like see all these comics that I'd heard were so awesome and they were just exactly as awesome, if not awesomer than I had heard or more awesome right. or whatever the correct I like <laughs> awesomer. That works awesomer. for me. But um, awesome. Um, yeah, and uh, I made my living for a summer off those, you know, selling the mul- <laughs> all the extra copies at this one consignment store, and uh, I just remember being blown away at the quality of the art. You know, every page, literally, you know, I would read them multiple times because you could pour over every frame, you know, and and catch other you know more details and stuff and uh you know nowadays you just sort of read it like a normal comic book because normal comic books are sort of up to this level of art now and right and have expanded upon it and improved upon it and built on it but um boy it was just you know it stood right out and a comic by john byrne a cover by john byrne just popped out of the comic rack when you saw it in in the store that's that comes down to one of those perspective things I was talking about in the beginning of this segment that I, I think that to a certain degree, some of these early projects by Byrne, they suffer a little bit from what I call psycho syndrome, which is, you know, I remember the first time I watched Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. And I just walked away from it going, wow, that's the movie everybody talks about as being this this great classic, you know, scary movie. I just didn't get it, you know, because here it was, you know, by the time I saw it, it was 20 some years after the movie had been released and it had been imitated to death. So it just I, I lacked any perspective to understand what what's so great about this movie. And I think that that happens with things like this in comics where because it it set the standard for the way comics were paced, drawn, written, yeah, it's and everything for so many years afterwards and became the language of comics that you can look back on it 20 years well out and go I don't get what's so special about this. It's like this. But it you you and I you and I will never know what it felt like to hear the Beatles for the first time. To have right. been listening to radio and listening to music and rock and roll and then all of a sudden a Beatles song came on. We have no idea mm-hmm. what that is because it had already shaped everything by the time we, we were right. you know, paying attention. And it's the same. But then there's you know the next generation. They'll never know what it feels like to walk into a movie theater and see Star Wars for the first time. Right. But, you know, then again... You know, their kids are not going to have, you know, their kids are not, I guess they're going to be like something like, you know, you, you have no idea what it was like when we went to see the matrix for the first time. <laughs> you take yeah. this shit for granted. And, and it actually gets shorter and shorter that, that length yeah. of that gap, you know, because mm-hmm. now the matrix look of movies is, you know, just completely taken over everything. So in a matter of just a few years, 
you know, a decade mm -hmm. or so. So it's always like that. It's just there's always going to be something. But it's always I good to get you know, that perspective. It's always good to hear that perspective and and look at it. That's what, you know, I mean, say if you go to school for something, that's what you learn. You know, that's what you get. You get the, right. the perspective of it. And, and if you're into comics and, and, you know, I can see there's some people who aren't into the history of the comics. They're into what they want to read at the certain time. But some people... You know, it's the same thing with music. Some people are like music to listen to and to have as a sort of thing that they, you know, play every once in a while. Some people get really into it and want to find out the histories of the bands and how they did everything and right. who was in other bands before and, and all that. So, Well, it hasn't helped either that, that Burn for a long time basically... Kind of sucked? I'm, I'm going to... Not, not sucked, but I'm going to say... With, with a few notable exceptions that burn post Superman right up until this Star Trek stuff that he's doing for IDW he fell very much into that uh, you know when, you, when you've been at the absolute pinnacle and now all there is you know the only direction is down kind of kind of scenario so for a long time, he was to the generation coming up what Jack Kirby was to us as we were growing up, because you and I grew up in a time where Jack Kirby was on the way down. He was doing a lot of projects that just didn't, they weren't as big as he was. You know, he was doing like Devil Dinosaur in 2001 and, you know, super, what was it, superpowers and stuff like that. And now, you know, I'm not belittling Jack Kirby. I'm not belittling those projects because I know that there's a lot of, you know, people that, that really hold that stuff up. However, you know, you can't deny that it's just, it wasn't as good as his early stuff. You know, he, he was getting older. Some people say getting lazier. He just wasn't bringing, you know, bringing it the way he had been earlier. Byrne was the same way. I've long maintained that I think something vital went out of John Byrne after he left Superman. And... I think his his work reflected that nine times out of ten. I mean, there were still great things that he did in that interim, but it really doesn't seem until you know. It, it seems to me that it really wasn't it's like until recently the Tonight that he kind of re yeah. It's like when you lose a Tonight Show, you know. <laughs> but uh, I don't want to go too long on this segment, but I did. Uh, I did have a few notes. Uh, the big one I wanted to, to cover here was uh, there's actually a letter from Byrne himself yeah. in the letters page, and I got a kick out of this. I've got to read it's this. It's so humble. It is. It really is, and it's it's just really, I think it's really funny. I think it's very cool. It says, uh, I like to make my apologies in advance. Taking over a book from another artist is bad enough. Oftentimes, one style differs from the other, and readers are subjected to a quantum lurch. But taking over a book from an artist uh, one has you admired rang. for years, I might even go so far as to say an artist of whom I have myself been a fan puts the newcomer through almost as bad a lurch as the readers, sometimes worse. Taking over the X-Men has put me through changes. Oh boy, has it put me through changes. Not enough that I have to follow in Dave Cockrum's footsteps, but the role of artists on this book reads like a who's who of comics. Kirby, Smith, Steranko, Adams, and now Byrne? Byrne? Who is this guy? 
what's he done besides a late lamented kung fu book? Okay, he co-created a very popular little robot a few years back, but no one is handing out laurels for past glories. Except and us. He says, sigh. Yeah. He says, so bear with me, folks. Give the new kid a chance. Marvel trusts me. After all, they've let me play with Spider-Man and the Avengers and Daredevil, now the X-Men. Bear with me. Uh, we may all come through this alive. John Byrne, London, Ontario, May 10th, 1977. And you're right. It does, It reads very, uh, very humble. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's wild when you think of where he went from here. Because, you know, I don't think it's a ridiculous or, or exaggerated statement to say, you know, you made the comparison a little while ago to the Beatles and I don't want to belittle uh, the accomplishments of, say, Chris Claremont or Terry Austin or the other people that that had a hand in all this. But I would say that for a time, John Byrne very much became like a beetle of comics. I mean, he was huge. Well, he was I, that big in I, that world. I might not go that far, but I'll I, I'll I'll spread the I'll spread the um, credit out a little more. I think this time period was sort of the Beatles time period of. That's comments. that's very true. You know, that's I mean, Chris true. Chris Claremont has a lot to do with it. Um, Frank Miller, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what he's become, had a lot to do with it. Uh, a lot right. of it started really like, sort of bubbled up in Marvel. Really, Marvel was sort of you know pushing the envelope at, at this time, and it, and it sort of bled into DC and both. And that's when the whole indie things started and direct sales and comic shops started opening and that whole this whole time period is like the Beatles of comics you know you're right Whereas, you're absolutely you know, right the original Superman was like the birth of rock and roll this was where it was taken and and you know I don't know you could even argue it a little further back to maybe Spider-Man being the first glimmer of that you know and the sort of modern age superheroes but this was when comics started getting taken a little more seriously and that the, the uh, age yep. group that was reading them became a little bit older and a, a little bit more serious not not that they yep. were you know still <laughs> weren't marginalized what's but, funny for me personally is that uh i read all of this stuff post you know i, I read it all as uh you know when it was well over because i didn't personally discover burn as a name you know as somebody that i i was like wow this guy's awesome and i'm gonna follow him until that issue i want to say it's 232 but i could be wrong but it's an issue of the fantastic four it was called the man with the power do you remember that one that one yeah it's a great issue and i can't wait to get to it but i think that was my first exposure to burn although i do distinctly remember going to the cigar shop where we bought our comics and seeing X-Men. And I, I want to say it was you, but I remember somebody trying to convince me how awesome the stuff was, but I just never had an interest in the X-Men. I'm still not very much of an X-Men fan, although I have read most of the stuff by now. But uh, at this time, I just I just wasn't into it. And I think a lot of what it was was I resented them being like the top of the heap, that everybody was into the X-Men yeah, well, and the, I was well, it, very it got much out of hand. Yeah, well, X Men yeah, and Spider Man for a, for a period just got re- got damn ridiculous. But <laughs> my my last note is, and I know we sort of talked about this before, is we're, I, I'm I'm looking at this on a CBR, which I got from you, because uh-huh. I don't have this issue. 
whoever did the CBR, thumbs up. You put all the ads in, in it. Yes, you, you put and the letters page. Page. You put every page in it. It's That's how you should do a CBR. It's I, it, I love it. It's like an archived thing because I love the ads. I love, like, Stan Lee in the beginning of it looking like the brawny lumberjack man. Uh, you know, like... <laughs> You know, it's awesome. Read pizzazz, it. and it's like he's in his, you know, flannel shirt with some. His hand is a little disproportioned. He's got this humongous, like giant, like we're number one hand pointing at it's his. It's just pizzazz. so funny to see him drawn that way because you know we think of him today as you know little old grandpa, kind of old, <laughs> yeah, grandpa, and he's a little old and frail. But right here, he looks like he could beat your ass if you weren't yeah. reading pizzazz. You know, yeah. And I don't know, He's you huge. know, it's good to see, like, BB gun ads. I don't know. I doubt they put BB gun ads in comics anymore. God damn it. You, got the <laughs> kid, you know, the kid looking down the side of his BB gun and it's okay, you know. <laughs> it's totally, it's it's totally all right, man. And I've often wondered how many one-eyed 40-year-olds there are out in the world right now because of all those BB gun ads. And I miss all the cheesy iron-on T-shirt you know, belly buttons need love too. <laughs> Happiness is hang a out, tight but... pussy. <laughs> Turkeys <laughs> need <out>. love too. <laughs> before you get to to that one ad page, though, I, I did have a couple quick notes before we get to the rest of those ads because there's that one really cool ad page with all the the toys and stuff. Uh-huh. I had something I wanted to point out on that one, but uh, real quick, um, page two, panel six. Tell me that a Corsair right there is not inspired or maybe even taken right out of a uh, Wayne Boring Superman. The whole pose right there with, like, the slightly curved leg, just the way he's, like, flying oh. in the sky. Do you see it? Yeah. It's got... Is that... it, it reminds me of the guy I don't actually like too much that did the death of Captain Marvel. Oh, uh, uh, Starlin, Jim Starlin. Yeah, it reminds me a little of Jim Starlin. That that both guns <laughs> blazing look. Hmm. I can kind of see that. And he's a sort of space guy, you know, which Jim Starlin always drew sort of. It, it, yeah. it sort of reminds me of that. I tried to keep my distaste for that in check, but I will just mention that uh, although I really did enjoy this story and everything. I, and I tried not to rip on it too much. I was never a fan of the cosmic stuff with the X-Men. I can't stand the frickin' Star Jammers and the Imperial Guard and the Shi'ar and all that junk. So I was really pleased that this is a really good story, um, despite all that stuff that I really don't care yeah. for. Well, because it's just a battle, you know, at this point. Yeah. It's just people beating on each other. So we got we, we got in on the good part, probably. <laughs> Page three is awesome for so many reasons. First, you got Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, yeah. Because it's just cool to see old presidents in comics. I don't know why that tickles me well, so they much. Stop, but always not, now they always make some sort of composite president, you know? Yeah. That's just some yeah. guy, you know, that looks sort of like all the presidents. But I like that back in these days they would have the real president in there. Yeah. And if you notice at the back of uh, Jimmy Carter's little communication thing that he's talking to everybody with it says stark industries on it does it i didn't yeah you're absolutely right 
See, you caught that, and uh, and I didn't. But then I caught. Did you catch the uh, Raj two thousand Easter egg in the second panel? No. Right in front of Corbo's mouth, that little module on the wall says Raj two thousand. Oh, you're right. You're yeah, right. it was a little Easter egg for his robot thing. He did the he did a lot of those. But I, what I really like is uh, I li- I miss this from from Marvel Comics. I used to love when they do these little cameo things like this. There'd be some giant world-shaking or universe-shaking crisis and real briefly you might get a reaction of, you know, what what are the you know, what's going on with the Fantastic 4? What's yeah. going on with the Avengers? Why aren't they dealing with this or are they dealing with this or trying to or whatever? And it's just great all the little cameos in well, here with good. the it's FF. Good. Yeah, and you get to see him draw the FF too. Yeah. Most of the FF, 3 quarters of the FF. And then it's got yeah. <laughs> just terrible writing, though, in that those last two panels. Not this time, my <laughs> love. It's too big and too far away. Like it or not, this is out of our hands. Oh, Hank, hold me close. I, I'm scared. I know, baby. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, cheesy. You, you did that so well. No, of course, there on the next page, that page six, I think he looks like a Carmine uh, Infantino style thing there. See, I see a lot of different art because I think that's what Byrne starting. Of course, a lot of artists do that. You know, they they borrow from their favorites and all that until they really develop their own style. But during this period, I can see so many of Byrne's influences in his art at this point. You know, there's clearly a lot of uh, of. Adams, yes, in there. Which is there's a lot of. Uh, well I think there's some. Yeah, Neil Adams and uh, and J- uh, Jim Apero, and uh, yeah, it's just fantastic stuff. What, what else have I got for notes on this one? Um, the image of uh, Nightcrawler's nightmare on page. Uh, it's page sixteen, I think, of the story. Yeah, page 16, the bottom of the page, that nightmare image he's having of being staked by his friends, that became the basis of the R. Adams cover when this story got reprinted in, um, what was that, classic X-Men number 15 in 1987. That's a really cool cover that that kind of expounds on that same image. And Arthur Adams was somebody who definitely built off, you know, was... I think inspired by Byrne. A lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. I noticed McCran for the McCran crystal was uh, misspelled at least, you know, or spelled at least two different ways. There were a few typos in, in here. I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> there were a few little typos and misspellings in here, and that I noticed. The only other note I've got is uh, going back to that uh, that ad page. Go ahead and take it away, and then I'll, I'll cover the one I want to cover on there. Which. Which ad page was it? The one I was on before? Uh, I'm not sure. It was the one. It's like the jam one with like the the web shooters and all the different the belt buckles and all this cool stuff on it. Right, I thought that was there. the. I thought that's where you were headed. I'm not sure if that was the one I'm on. Do you know what page it's on? It's uh, let's see. It's page 14 as you're going through the CBR. Okay. I'm sorry, did I skip too far ahead? <laughs> That's where I thought you were headed, was that one. Oh, okay, yeah, the one with all the, the Marvel swag. Yeah. Of course, which has the 
Star Wars Treasury Giant yeah. Edition in it. Only two dollars. What a bargain. Now what caught my eye on that page was something I actually owned and have had totally forgotten about until I saw the ad, which was the Spider-Man and Fantastic Four game by I, Milton Bradley. I, I owned that. that and yeah. I forgot all about that game. I knew you were going to say that because I was just looking at the cover of it and going, I've seen that in Scott's room. (laughs) I couldn't tell you what it was about or how you played it now, but I know I owned it. It was probably terrible. All those board games at that point were so cheesy and chintzy. But Every Christmas and birthday, my parents would buy me a ton of board games. But up until I was nine years old, I was an only child. Who the hell was I going to play right. all these board games with? They sure as hell didn't play board games with me. So I had all these board games that were like in mint condition because they never got played. Well, like when your parents were, your parents would play board games, but it would be like Trivial Pursuit or, or Monopoly right. or something, you know, adult games or whatever. Right, yeah. They wouldn't play like uh, – I had like a – I don't know what it was called, but I know I had an Indiana Jones game at one time. It was like, I don't know, it was probably like Raiders of the Lost Ark, the board game or something. But it was this Indiana Jones game. I never played it one time. I have no idea what that <laughs> game was about. Never played it. Probably worth a fortune today. Well, I think that's all I've got on this issue. What else have you got on it? Anything? I, I think I'm about all set and ready to go on to the next one. Cool. Well, and- I enjoyed the hell out of this, but as much as I did... I'm looking forward to ones further along. There's some along great with, ones coming along, yeah. Because if memory serves, I think the very next issue is the one where uh, Guardian comes calling, looking for, I believe he's looking for Wolverine to try to take him back to Canada. If I'm right, back that's to Canada a with you. good story. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, so we're going to go from here to traveling around the country to the comic bag with Johnny Bueno. And that'll be coming up next. And after that, more comics. And then more comics. Traveling from coast to coast, jet setting, if you will, it's Johnny Bueno going to local comic shops everywhere in this giant United States. Maybe a comic shop near you. And now, the comic bag! (laughs) Yes, it's the comic bag. Welcome, Johnny Bueno. Why, thank you. I I hear we're, um, we're flipping coasts. We did the East Coast Last week, and you're going to do West Coast Styly this week, month? We're going to do, yes, we're going to do West Coast Styly. And uh, I, I may be from the East Coast, but I, I think I'm kind of partial to a lot of the, the West Coast comic shops. I'm not sure if it's just the vibe or if people are more uh, relaxed about not being so geeked up on superheroes. But uh, yeah, this pla- the place this week we're going to talk about is. Uh, Probably one of my all-time favorite shops is called Doctor Comics and Mister Games, and uh, it's on uh, four four zero one four Piedmont Avenue, um, right in a pretty funky part of Oakland, California. I gotta admit, it's North Oakland, um, 
kind of a little bit like the uh, the old Monroe Avenue on Roche in, in uh -huh. Rochester, New York, but uh, much funkier than even that, you know. Well, it's Oakland, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, don't let the funny name uh, surprise you. This place is awesome. It's um, not the biggest of storefronts in the world, as far as, as far as like width, but man, this place is just huge, and um, they've got a just the, the, the store of all stores. Um, I didn't really see too much about games. I think that's all on the second floor. But on the first floor, you walk in and the thing just opens right up. It's probably, I don't know, just trying to remember now, it's probably a good 30 yards wide. And the thing's going to go back. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. And it probably, I mean, there's like all sorts of sections, kind of like we were talking about with yeah, it was probably about the same size, I think, as um, the place we talked about last time with um, Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash. The same sort of concept, but uh, completely different altogether. Um, front section is uh, is a lot of superhero stuff, but it's like all the newer superhero stuff, a lot of toys and games up front. Um, and, and oh, by the way, that this, there's they have a staff there. It's not just like one person or a couple people. They've got like, from what I could tell, there's like three, four people working there at all times. Um, you know, you're in a real comic shop when when they have a staff of people. Um, yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, and absolutely. We, this is like, all right, now we're getting something here. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, yeah, it, it, uh, they don't have a website, but there are a couple pictures here and there. And, you know, they've got up in the front section, they've, they've got all the new, the new books, you know, that come out each week, new comics, um, all sorts of statues in the front. I mean, just everything you could possibly imagine as far as DC, Marvel, the manga. They've got tons of statues. They have um, tons of hardcovers. I mean... It would put like, I mean, it's like a library as far as the amount of hardcover they have just just lined up on the walls. There's a lot. I mean, uh, when I was in there, it was, I would say, somewhat crowded, but the place was so big that, you know, there probably was, you know, 30, 40 people in there from front to back, from what I could tell, upstairs That's and downstairs. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, really. Well, and it was, I, I went, I've been there twice, and, um, first yeah both times I went there it was probably around three or four o'clock in the afternoon I was just on my way back to the hotel and made a little detour and uh, yeah just an awesome awesome store um, but really the back half of the store is what really got me going um, the back half of the store is is where all their kind of their not just their alternative books but like, like the Dark Horse and the Vertigos and stuff like that. But they have literally a full, you know, I, I've seen small comic stores of this size, just of like all the underground stuff. And it's just incredible. I mean, they have like long boxes upon long boxes of just underground and alternative comics. Oh, it sounds like heaven for me. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, you don't have, it's not dark, it's not dingy. You're not, like, getting dirty and crawling around. I mean, it's all there. And then they have, like, just, like, racks of stuff, too. I just, like, anything I could ever think of, I go to look for it, and it was there. It was I've, just... <laughs> I know what you mean about West Coast 
comic stores because my all my favorite like most except and now I can't remember the name of it but it's a famous comic store in Toronto that place was wonderful. Oh, the beguiling. The beguiling was a wonderful comic shop, yeah. but I've but it reminded me of the there. West I've Coast. I've always wanted to. It reminded me actually... of a lot of the West Coast stuff where it had everything, where you could find yeah. some of the underground stuff, which isn't very like rare, but it's just hard to get. You know, you'd have to order it from somewhere, and they would have it there. And and I noticed that a lot about the West Coast is, is they were, you know, it was. You're in, like here in Rochester, there's always an underground section, but depending on the comic shop, you know, like there's some comic shops that just have a token few and are surely going to well, have the walking dead. Well, because the sure thing is the mainstream, it's the superheroes, it's the spandex, yeah. you know? Yeah, but if you, you know, in comics, etc., in the middle sort of has a medium assortment of them, and then you go to, um, I can't remember the other, Comic Book Heaven. Yeah. He's 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 more the guy who owns it is, loves those comics so there's a huge selection there relatively huge, but when you yeah. go to the West Coast, if you like the underground stuff, it's just like, it's that's where it all is because that's where a lot of the publishers were too. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, we could talk about some other time. One of the probably one of the most famous uh, Northern California comic shops is. Uh, in, in Berkeley, California, called Comic Relief, but uh, I, I like Doctor Comics. Um, Doctor Comics, um, it's not overpriced. It's it's everything is accessible. You know, um, it's it's still open, even though they just have so much stuff. It's still just very open. You can walk around. You're not going to fear for knocking things over. Now, I went back. I, I was there twice. I think probably around like 07 and 08. And both times I was in the back, I met this one guy, and his name was Jack as well. And um, it's so funny because I asked him about, uh, I forget which one it was. I think it was called Rolf, R-O-W-L-F, which is uh, a Richard Corbin book. And uh -huh. the guy just, like, his eyes lit up. He's like, dude, I love Corbin. This is like, all right, we're going to be friends, aren't we? <laughs> But yeah, I mean, they had just like all these long boxes of those. I, I picked up just about all the hates I still needed to, to, to finish my collection there. Um, all sorts of crazy stuff there. Um, you know, everything Fantagraphics. Uh, I found a bunch of print mints there. There's some things that I that I picked up there that I've never seen anywhere else. And there's two of them. It's pretty amazing. Um, the first one is actually a comic book written about, written by Harvey Picard, or I think he's associated with it, but it's not about Harvey Picard. It's his friend Lois. Did you ever see that one? And no. it, it's weird because it came out that week and it's drawn by Gary Dumb, who does a lot of Harvey's stuff with American Splendor. Right. But Harvey wrote this little thing. He's like, yeah, my friend Lois, I've known her for years been bugging her to write a comic and finally I just had to heck with it and decided to help her out and it you know it, it came out that week and I saw it on their their alternative rack in the back for new books and I was like well that's kind of interesting and he's like you better pick that one up quick before it disappears it's like all right then I did and the other book that's amazing I saw it there and uh, they were just labeling they had this short box of like Golden Age, but like not superhero Golden Age books. You know what I mean? Like there was westerns and 
you know, just all sorts of stuff from the 50s. Well, one of the comics that they had was um, the very first appearance of the original Ghost Rider from the 50s. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, done by Dick, by Dick Ayers. It was Tim Holt number 10. And you see it right in the little square in the bottom left corner. It says, introducing the Ghost Rider. And I saw it, and it was like, it was like in good, good plus condition. He wanted like 40 bucks for it, and I was just like, I, there was like so much other stuff, I just couldn't see myself. as was like, man, this is an investment book, because you just don't see that book ever. Right. And yet, you know, <laughs> I come back a year later, and there's that box. It's moved maybe five feet, and I look in it, and it's still there. Wow. <laughs> did you buy it? Yeah, I did. I was just going to say, you had to buy it. If... I, I did buy it, and I actually gave it last year to Dick Ayers to, to sign when he was in Boston. Oh, cool. He's like, I, I haven't like seen you. this one in a while. <laughs> yeah, no, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> Old darling Dick, man. Just a reminder of how old he is. <laughs> well, he's an interesting guy, and I won't get too far off topic from, from uh, the shop here, but I, I live like about five miles from Dick Ayers, and so I, I've done a lot of reading about him and stuff like that, and he chronicled he has a log of every job he ever did that's i think that's amazing i mean he's been drawing comics for over 50 years yeah it must be like a phone book yeah so anyways uh i yeah i mean i, I was there twice i probably spent two hours there each time i was there um i will say this though the uh the, uh, the complete crumb books, even they didn't have them all. They had some of them in hardcover, which are almost impossible to find. But, uh, yeah, I, and I didn't even make it upstairs. I didn't even make it upstairs to see what else was there. There was just, like, so much stuff in so many areas. I mean, usually, you know, when it comes to shops, I'm pretty good, especially when there's not a lot of people around, of, of being able to work, work a shop over, as I like to put it, you know? Yeah. Or, yeah. You poke around, you find some spots, you do a little digging, you see what you can find here, what you can find there, you know, what's what's in the dollar bins and, and stuff. It reminds what, me of the last time I went bottle digging. It totally sounds like archaeology, you know? Yeah. It's just like, this was just like, you, you, every time you turn around, there's like something else. Like, holy, it's like, you, I, I, I kind of felt like I needed a shopping cart or like one of those little, those plastic ones that you carry around. You know I mean? It's minions. That's what we all need are minions. People who walk around behind <laughs> us and you just put stuff in their arms, you know, until they're... Those are called kids. Overburdened. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, the, the, I'd still rather get myself a little red wagon <laughs> at this point in my life. So there I'm talking you go. about one of those little shopping carts that you carry around. Just a little basket. Mm-hmm. I that's what I'll name. That's that. what I'll name my minion, Basket. He'll be like Michael Jackson's kid blanket. <laughs> Come along, Basket. I'll just be ch and I'll train Basket to catch stuff as I just chuck it over my shoulders. Yeah, and I, you know, as, as awesome as Doctor Comics is, it's it's in like right in the cool, right in the heart of Funky Town, man. It is funky. There's just just a cool grooving. Uh, you know, it's a main street. It's a main drag over in Piedmont there, but it's, but it's not. You know what I mean? It's a walking street too. Um, a couple of different grocery stores. 
There's a Pete's coffee house there, coffee shop there, one of my favorite places to get a cup. And I swear Jeez. to God, none of these places have paid us a penny. <laughs> they oh, don't no, even know we they exist. need to now. Yeah, now they owe us, so. <laughs> oh, this, yeah, you know, this is, I, I, I think between, you know, just how enormous the place was and just how well-rounded. I mean, you know, there, there's other shops like you and I have gone to in the past, Chris, where, like, uh, like the place up in Burlington. You know, that's a nice shop. They had a nice variety. Well, think of something like that, but like... Huge. Yeah, like four times that size, plus an upstairs. And there you go. <laughs> it was just nice. like that. And then, and then like, just, you know, the West Coast vibe. I'm sure, you know, I, I should, probably should have looked around. I'm sure there was some sort of prescription marijuana somewhere. I probably could have... <laughs> yeah, you could have. Whether I was going to buy anything or not, that goes without saying. You would have had to take curiosity. a trip to the... You would have had to take a trip to a, one of those... $50 doctors and said, I have headaches. And he, what fixes your headaches? Marijuana. Here you go, son. I was and just then, hoping to like maybe take one of those old uh, Eisenhower silver dollars and put it in the gumball machine and see what popped out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, on, on that note, I, I think uh, we're going to have to uh, wrap this up since we have long miles to go on this goddamn episode but Johnny maybe we can uh, maybe we can plant you (laughs) what you don't like maybe we can uh, plant you somewhere in the more in the middle of the country next month that's possible that's possible there's not as many but uh, there's a place in Scranton PA that I wouldn't mind uh, revisiting ooh well okay so all comic shops in Scranton PA be on your best behavior. Yeah, there's actually three or four of them I've been to over there, so who knows which one we'll pick. Excellent. We'll get out all the right, random well, comic uh, thanks, shop Thanks, fellas. Generator. Scott, I'll have to catch up with you sometime. Uh, reading all these interesting things in the comic shop news, I figured it might pique your interest. Yes, yes. I, I, I'm not able to... Uh, I don't have any access to comic shop news where I am, so I would, I would very much enjoy doing that. They're talking about Superman, the last family of Krypton, number one. Oh, boy. (laughs) No, really, we're trying to wrap this up, man. (laughs) Don't start throwing gasoline on that fire, man. It's an Elseworlds tale. (laughs) Oh, okay. I thought it was tied into the current um, current goings on. Uh, I gotcha. Anyways, well, good luck to you guys. Have fun. Uh... Don't drink too much coffee. <laughs> we'll talk with you later. Dr. Pepper tonight, but yes. <laughs> Always good talking to you, Jack. You too. The Saga of the Swamp Thing. Alright, we're back with Comics Monthly Monday, Saga of the Swamp Thing. Exciting, exciting episode, issue-sode of the Saga of the Swamp Thing. Back in January 1984, this was a 75-cent cover. Um, 
The art is by Dan Day and uh, John Totalbaum. And Tom Yates did the cover. And this is Swamp Thing number 20 with its brand new writer, Alan Moore. Yeah. So Alec finds Arcane's corpse amidst the wreckage of his Arcane craft and waxes poetic about he about you know how he and arcane are are sort of two sides of the same coin and meanwhile sunderland decides to get serious and unleashes all of his forces to kill off our heroes using the government cover of being government agents that are going to uh to uh, seal the site of a ufo crash so uh, liz and dennis wake up in the car in postcoital bliss and uh Liz breaks the bad news to Dennis that he's a nice guy and all, but uh, last night was just sort of a one-night thing, you know, and that's not really the answer he wants, so he just sort of stalks off, and he's kind of pissed. And uh, meanwhile, the noose is drawing tighter as uh, as uh, Sunderland's men, you know, slowly start to surround the swamp with all sorts of military equipment. And are actually, like, enlisting the locals to help. Uh, Meanwhile, we find Abby returning back to her cabin to find Matt sober and claiming to have defeated his his psycho-creative powers that were creating all the monsters in the the last uh, issue. And Abby's pleased, but she's a little cautious about it. And, uh... So, uh, you know, she gives Matt a hug and he starts saying, hey, come on. And she's just like, no, you know, I just can't turn it on and off and and just sort of walks off. So (laughs) next thing you know, we see Matt sitting in a chair with a a bottle and a shot glass in his hand with a tiny little (laughs) blue glowing uh, lap dancer. And uh, and he's just sort of saying to himself, "Uh, I didn't really get rid of my power, but now I know how to control it. And uh, so Dennis and Liz uh, discover that uh, Sunderland or someone is hot on their trail when a helpful stranger opens the door to their hotel room and is uh, thanked by being blown into pieces. So they just sort of run off into the swamp fleeing, you know, to, to presumed safety. And, you know, Sunderland, of course, thinks they're dead. And uh, Swamp Thing, though, is not so lucky. He's uh, he's in the swamp, surrounded, and, uh, you know, the whole swamp is lit up like a Christmas tree. So he decides, you know, after having this whole great internal monologue, that uh, he's going to make a run for it. Only, as soon as he does this, he's just riddled with bullets, one hitting him just squarely smack in the forehead, and he collapses lifelessly onto the ground and the troops around him and prepare to pack up his seemingly lifeless body. And that's the end of Swamp Thing number 20. Which seems like it could be the end of Swamp Thing period, but seeing as how it's the first issue of Alan Moore, oh boy. And let me just say right off the bat, I'm going to get the first gush in on this one. Oh, yes. Finally, you know, I mean, I've been trying, I I think we've been doing a good game of, of being nice up to this point for the last 19 months, but man, the prose in this just reads like melting butter, 
You know, it's beautiful. It could be pretentious, and a lot of, like, Alan Moore stuff can be pretentious now because it's been, you know, run into the ground by other people. But you really see his true mat- mastery of language in this. It, it ju- it's just beautiful. There's just layers of wordplay and I just can't, I can't say enough about how one, Swamp Thing's, you know, internal monologue about, you know, being a monster and the monsters having the darkness and the darkness is slowly disappearing could be very pretentious. And, you know, two or three issues ago, it would have been very pretentious. But in this, it's just heartrending. And, you know, when the, when the final bullet hits him in the forehead, it's just a punch in the face. Uh, it's, it's an awesome, awesome beginning to an awesome, awesome run of comic books. And I'm so glad we're, we're getting to cover them now. <laughs> I've been I waiting to really... be, I've been waiting to be right here for 19 oh, months. Yeah. yeah. It, uh... Sunderland finally becomes evil. You know, he feels evil. He has, mo- you know... He, uh, now he has tangible motivations and he could have had tangible motivations before but um um what was it Pasco just yeah. never was very clear with it I mean more sums up exactly why Sunderland wants these people dead you know why he wants Swamp Thing and why he wants these people dead and it's not a very complicated reason but for some reason you know it took Alan Moore to just succinctly put it all together. I love my it. My favorite part of the entire issue, my my absolute favorite lines, is the bottom of page 12 and the beginning of page 13 where uh, the two soldiers are talking and the one guy says, eh, says you know, the, that old general, he's really tying up some loose ends here today. Uh-huh. And the other guy says, he's tying them all up, Roy. Every damned one. And that <laughs> sums up what is going on with this story because yeah. right off the bat we see, you know, Swamp well, it's Thing. called Loose you know, Ends. <laughs> the story yeah, exactly. is called Loose he, Ends. He's tying it all up. And the way the issue ends, I mean, it's a great perspective. So the art is fantastic in here. Dan mm-hmm. Day is definitely on uh, on one of my lists of, you know, underappreciated uh, comics talents because he, he's – well, he just—he brings... just morphs into the style of of um, of Yates and uh, and Bissett that we've mm-hmm. seen that sort of set the precedent of how this looks. He he goes right into it, but you know he I, and I don't know if this was Alan Moore who had these ideas or if it was you you know. But there's some nice framing devices. On. There's yeah. one where it had there's two. You know, it has sort of a crest, uh, a curve to the top of the frame on both pages. The page where Liz and Dennis wake up in the car, and there's an just an eagle, a golden eagle, like off the top of a flagpole or a building. You know, on each side of the 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 curve. And there's another where with um, where when when we go back with Abby, and uh, at the top are, are a liquor bottle. 
with liquor I'm dripping gonna... out of it that's dripping down along the edge of the frame. Yeah. I'm going to guess that that's Dan Day only because I have seen him use that sort of visual styling before. Uh-huh. But, you know, again, he might also be playing off, you know, Moore's notes or something like that. I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, it really, really works for me. Yeah. I usually don't like comic art that tries to get all artsy-fartsy and fancy and everything. But this is a, is a nice blend of trying to be, you know, trying to transcend the medium while still working within it, you know? Well, well here's the thing. That's that's the problem. The the problem with that that I think turns a lot of people against artsy fartsy is, like everything else, ninety five percent, ninety nine percent of artsy fartsy is pretentious crap. Right. You know, and non artsy fartsy is trashy trash. But you know the artsy fartsy stuff. Most of that's trash too. It's just pretentious trash. But when it's good. When they do it for a reason besides trying to be fancy or show off for a real reason. And like this one, there's a whole mood with this eagle, you know, and the eagle keeps getting bigger and more looming. There's one where he's just sort of an outline of the characters in the frame. And right. as, as Sunderland draws in, the eagle becomes bigger and bigger in the in the frame of it. And it works the 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 symbolism works it it contributes to the feel of the story it's where you know it's just rare to have this fusion of art and writing on such a high level of both and have it click and have it just firing on all cylinders on all levels and mm-hmm. uh, and as as we'll see in the next coming months consistently good and as a matter of fact you know hitting peaks you know you know there's a lot of peaks to come there's a lot of really just standout stuff coming and you know and and really this is just alan moore's this is really alan moore like you said he's tying up the loose ends for his real first issue which is going to be next month which is the anatomy lesson anatomy lesson yeah fantastic book where he gets to unveil his plan this is just taking it from before to his plan and it's done just masterfully absolutely i mean i the only the only issue i've got and it's a very very minor one but it's funny you, you should use the word pretentious because when i first read it um I took Swamp Thing's inner monologue to be very pretentious when I first read this. But then when I looked back over it again, I realized it's really not what it is, is it's a little bit of a jarring transition because before this point, Swamp Thing's thoughts, much like his speech, were were few and far between and they were in that stilted style. Yeah, you know, where he would say it makes sense. Because he was yeah. still had the mind of Alec Holland. Right. But in this one, he's got a lot of dialogue, you know, inner dialogue, you know, and it's uh, it's still done slightly stilted, but not near what it was before. So he's freed him up to think much more clearly and much more uh, Coherently. eloquently and, yeah. ver- yeah, and verbosely than he than he can do out loud. 
Well, he's about and, to become the central character of his own comic for once, so right. he needs to have a little more to him. But it just, you know, you, you've gone from him hardly saying, thinking, or really doing much of anything for a long time now till all of a sudden, you know, there are vast portions of this book where, you know, like you say, he's suddenly the main focus and he's doing a lot of talking to us, the audience. And so, you know, like I say, first impression was, wow, is this pretentious? But it's really not. It's just that we just, this isn't how it's been portrayed before. And it, and it takes a minute to realize that, okay, this, you know, a, a big transition's been made right here with the way this character is going to be handled now. Suddenly, you know, there's a reason why his name's on the cover. Yeah. It, and everybody else falls into their proper place of supporting and background characters. And I like that. I mean, yeah, with be- one fell swoop, he came in. And you can see exactly where he's going, you know, in the aspect of, you know, you may not know where the story's going, but you can see where he's going character-wise that, okay, this is going to be about Swamp Thing again. Yeah. He's going to, you know, he's going to step back in the in the he's, limelight. He's been the monster's sidekick who's just been propelled forward by the fates. He's been just like, you know, riding along the stream of, you know, on the stream of fate. And now right. he becomes... You know the 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 central crux of the story, you know. Finally, which you know, I mean, it's the name of the comic, yeah. And those and, uh, final two pages, where he's running, and it's funny because we're seeing as the reader, we're actually looking through the scope of a rifle, and the reticle gets bigger and bigger on Swamp Thing. And then they just, like you say, open up, riddle him with bullets, one of which goes right between his eyes. And there's a great panel, a great moment where he just stands there and it's it's complete, you know, disbelief. It's, I, I, I'm dead. You know, yeah. you, can, you can just see the look on his face is, they've killed me. And he just slowly topples to the ground. I love it. You know, and the, and the one soldier asks, you know, is it, you know, is it? And he said, the other guy says, yeah, it's dead. What a fantastic ending, you know? What a cliffhanger. Yeah. Like, holy shit, the hero just died, you know? Well, yeah. what, where are we going from here? Well, and then the teaser panel is his body on a slab with someone with a clipboard, you know? <laughs> the anatomy lesson, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's. It, I, I think the biggest compliment I can pay to this is, like I told you just before we started recording, I like this so much I had to go right on to the next issue. So I've actually reread the anatomy lesson already in preparation for next month because you know i that this was my first time reading this issue i've never read this story before but the anatomy lesson i had read before but it's been a long time but i loved this so much i was like wow now i've got to reread the anatomy lesson and and you know relive how awesome that was and uh, i'll just tease saying that yeah it holds up it's still a fucking great issue so it is so nice to be able to gush and appreciate this book again. You know, not that you know, I don't want to be overly harsh about Pascal because there was a lot of that stuff that I liked. I think and most really of it enjoyed. just pales in comparison to this stuff. Oh, that's absolutely. what it is. Yeah, that, that's the big thing is that when I when I read this, then I suddenly realized that, you know what? 
in all fairness, I'm trying to be kind, but in all fairness, we had just kind of fell into a lull of being content with meh, you know? Right. And then you get to this and you're like, okay, yeah, that's right. This rocks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. This this is where it's at. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, I love the original, original Swamp Thing mostly for the Bernie Wrights and Wright art. And who was after him? Was it Aparo? No, the, no, it was, uh, oh, God, you put me on the spot. I can't think of his name. But I like his art, too, and I love those because of the art. But as far as, like, Swamp Thing stories, and, and even the art in this is brilliant. I mean, these this is the pinnacle of Swamp Thing ever. Right. To me, it just really is the 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 height of this character, the height of the comic. Yes. Yeah, he guy. definitely, you know, he... he you know, whatever, whatever cliched, you know, analogy you want to use, you know, he hit the ground running or he came out swinging or whatever, but yeah, he, he did. I mean, right out of the gate, there was no, there was no clunkiness. There was no awkward transition from one writer to another. It was okay. I'm taking this over. And he does, you know? Well, it's a funny thing with, with artists and, it, sometimes it takes an artist to remind other artists and well maybe it's because in comics or in music and stuff a lot of it's a an, a money making venture but you know I mean Alan Moore just sort of illustrated in this one that hey you know what it's okay to really like stretch your imagination to really like truly explore things on more than just a sort of comic level on on a truly like you know philosophical level and and be intelligent about it you know right without losing right. any of the visceral fun of a comic book and i think it takes somebody to sort of remind you of that every once in a while that you you can try new things by just doing it and you know and it's always those people that and it goes against whatever the mainstream is, but it always ends up, that stuff always ends up being really successful, you know, because it's new and exciting and, and, and interesting. So I think this was, you know, and I think around the same time period, when, when did the uh, original Dark Knight Returns come out? Hmm. 85 or 86? 85, 86, I believe. So yeah, because it was right around the time of the, of the second, crisis. Yeah, this was sort of the second, this was sort of, the like late Beatles phase you know of comics after that 19 you know the the mid 80s where you know Alan Moore and um and Frank Miller especially as a writer were really like redefining things literally literally redefining things you know icons and uh show and of course that got that went completely out of control to the point of where now nothing is <laughs> it can go without being reinvented you know i they were ahead that the, alan moore was way ahead of american culture of that you know taking of the of the reboot we're watching yeah. a reboot of the swamp thing oh yeah and, absolutely and yeah. you know he, the, he was really a tra- trailblazer on that you know at least in this in this manner of it you know there'd been reimaginings before but usually it would be in resurrecting a character after 30 years or something you know 
and bringing them yeah, up he, to date. He very much, it was, it's, a, it's a revamping. You know, it's it's taking the the core elements and and giving them a fresh you know tweak yeah. to to take it he, in a whole new exciting direction. He, and yeah, he, he, he did he what the two thousand and nine Star Trek did. He he did it all while trying to do it you know along the continuity of the old one, and say instead of saying okay we're just picking up in a different timeline, there was sort of a stretch into the other timeline, and right. so he took the old Swamp Thing and did what was necessary to twist him into what he wanted to do and thank god <laughs> mm-hmm. it's funny i you know you, you hear his name so much in, in connection with so many other projects but I, I still think that this particular project maybe it's just me and and what i've read and what i've heard but this one seems to get the short shrift i just don't hear his swamp thing material mentioned near as much as his other material, a lot of which I got to be honest, I don't, I don't think holds a candle to this stuff. No, I agree. You know, I, I think ultimately he's going to go down in history, you know, comics history anyway. For Watchmen, Watchmen is the big thing, and I don't, I just don't find that anywhere near as as clever or as interesting as what he did with this material here. No, so. I, I find these Swamp Things are downright profound. You know, yes. I would go to get my comics, and the Swamp Thing comics. The, it was it's it's very much like going to get The Walking Dead. Now, when mm-hmm. I pick up, when I pick up a new copy of The Walking Dead, it's a piece of candy that I can't wait to get home and unwrap and read and you know, absorb. It's so pleasurable to absorb and stimulating in more ways than the average fun comic book is. You know, it's it gets more of my brain firing and my juices flowing and <laughs> and that's what and that's the swamp exactly thing was what like. yeah it was yeah. it was each new month was like what is he gonna do now and you know he was doing so much more and i remember i was annoying the hell out of you in this time period because we were doing our battle in outer space wars star wars parodies and i was wanting to always wanting to blow up the world after starting to read the swamp things and and do all sorts of reimaginings and stuff. And, and <laughs> now that I look back at it, I was completely, you know, you were complete, you were just like, what? No, come on. What are you thinking? And, uh, you know, now, now that I think about it, I, I admire my spirit, but you were totally right. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, it totally, I, I, you know, it made you want to just reboot things and it made you want to reimagine things in a, in, in a way that made them more, make you know i mean the way you know well we'll get to this next month but he makes the swamp thing truly make sense in an interesting way yeah and in a cosmic way that's truly cosmic unlike how like the john byrne comic we just did was cosmic yeah two two big things happen is that it 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 change it it totally changes the 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 perspective that you have on the character it but in an awesome way but also i think that's the first glimpse that that you get that he also man you know alan morning and this is another thing i don't think he gets enough acknowledgement for the man knows comics i mean he knows his dc lore and history very very well and he's very respectful of it and that definitely comes out next issue because 
you know, it's easy with this title, I think, especially so far, to forget that Swamp Thing still lives in the same world, you know, where Superman and the Justice League function. Right, and, and so we get they're a glimpse showing up, and and when yeah. they, and when he does get to have, you know, deal with other. DC characters. There's some other ancillary ones, you know, of course, with like Superman and Batman, he doesn't get to really, you know, what can he do to him? But there's, especially when we get into the later storyline that involves Arcane, you know, mm-hmm. we get, he gets to take some of, uh, what was that one? The Spectre, the guy in the green cape thing? Yes. He mm-hmm. gives some, dim- a lot of dimension to him. He, uh, you know, when the Phantom Stranger returns, in Swamp mm-hmm. Thing, he becomes an interesting, vital, kind of right. intimidating. You know, uh, he Alan Moore makes him into a true character instead of just like a comic book uh, Twilight Zone, you know, or yeah. a horror anthology guy that introduces stuff at the beginning and end. Yeah, uh, he becomes a real character. So he. Uh, you know everything he gets to touch, and I get, uh, and I always got the feeling as the series went on, that DC was like, who, who else can we throw into these, into right. these Swamp Thing stories and get a little more juice going to them from Alan Moore, you know, and uh, and he sure does. Another one of my favorites is when uh, Etrigan the Demon yeah. appears in here. He he's one of my favorite Alan Moore characters. He does a really good job. And he's a rhyming demon, and his rhymes are actually like complex. You might have to read three or four word balloons before the the rhyming structure is apparent. You know, uh, very just. Ah, I love it. Yeah, Alan got, Moore. Alan Moore some... knows his comics. He knows his books too. You know, he knows the score. <laughs> and, and and when you see him talk and stuff, he has that a little bit of that pretentious intellectual. He's got a little bit of that British hippie rock star to him too. Oh yeah. He actually has a rock band that's like reminds me of like my band in the early days. It's just funny <laughs> see, seeing him. But you know, and and when you read him like in interviews and stuff, he comes off as kind of pretentious and I think sometimes his stories are kind of pretentious and wordy and uh smug i just read actually night uh the first two issues of 1963 comics that he how was that great it's basically just a love letter to 1963 era marvel you know and it's not a parody per se or anything it's basically just sort of you know different characters but you know who they are roughly or they're combined with other characters and and it just copies the whole style and just has fun with it you know it has the bullpen its version of the bullpen bulletins written in that same style except you know they set it up that that the whole bullpen are you know that their version of stan lee is basically you know a slave driver and you know <laughs> keeping everybody locked up and it's joked about but you could tell there's you know it's it's got that alan moore satire to it but the the comics themselves, the stories are just fun, you know. Rick Veitch drawing them and having fun copying that style of art, and you know, there's a great one with basically the Spider-Man uh, version of the Spider-Man and uh, a giant talking dinosaur, you know, fighting a giant talking dinosaur. It's just it was it was awesome, great fun, 
end. You know, not not pretentious, you know, Alan Moore grand statement stuff. Just, you know, showing... Not even showing off, but, you know, showing his love of comics and his intense knowledge and understanding of the form and what well, I makes think it that, work. That series that you're talking about, I think that was written before. And I'm not sure exactly when and where this happened. But at some point, he, he turned a corner into... I, I think, honestly, what happened is he just started believing, believing his own hype. hype. Yep. Yeah. And and be, he did, unfortunately, at least in my opinion, he, he did kind of become the, the pretentious... You know, just very pretentious. He, he yeah. became the pretentious person he'd always tried so very hard not to be and not to become. But somewhere along the line, it just simply happened. And... That's kind of unfortunate. I, I think that's the reason for a lot of the negative things that you hear about him these days. But again, much like John Byrne, I, I can't fault the guy. You know, I mean, in the in the end, you know, from a writing standpoint, he was a god at his time. You Both know? of them strapped a rocket onto comic books and lit it off. You know. Oh hell yeah! So hell so yeah. you know. Okay, so you know what? I'll I I will give him his indulgences, just like Shatner. <laughs> That's an excellent way to put it because that that sums up what I've been struggling to find a way to put into words when it comes to John Byrne. Exactly. All these people that want to give, you know, because the big criticism about John Byrne is, oh, John Byrne's an arrogant, he's opinionated, he's an asshole, blah, 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 blah. You know what? Like you just said, I'll give him his indulgences, <laughs> you know, because he's fucking earned it is you know what, what it comes down to, if, you know. If he's going to bitch and moan and gripe about something, you know what? I'm going to listen. Right, I'm gonna listen to John Byrne's opinion. Right, <laughs> and I think that if I, we you had may not been... have to agree with it, but and and hey, I'll, I'll, you know, people get old and crotchety, and like, as as you get older, maybe you don't want to draw as much, you don't want to spend as much time on it, and hey, yeah, and he's put in his time over a drawing board, so. You know, I think that there's a tendency sometimes when people get old, and I, I mean, it doesn't matter if they're a comic book writer or if they're a, a fucking farmer, you know? There's a tendency, I think, sometimes that when people get old and they bitch and they complain or they're crotchety or they're opinionated or whatever to just write them off as the crazy old guy. But I have found in the course of my life that the more you listen to people like that, sometimes they're <laughs> as the people you get that older have and older. Figured out. Yeah. <laughs> as you get older and yeah, older, yeah, I become yeah. one of them. But no, exactly. that's not what I meant, you ass. But what I meant was a lot of times they <laughs> oh, have, my ticker. <laughs> they Sorry. have the insider, you know what I? So uh, what I'm really trying to say is that I think in a lot of ways, maybe the comic industry wouldn't be in the fucking shape it was today if, you know, we had continued to listen to guys like John Byrne and maybe. Alan Moore, who... Or maybe John Byrne... You know, maybe you know? John Byrne went through a state of burnout where he was just like... <laughs> burnout. Burnout. And uh, <laughs> where, you know, he got kind of sick of it, was doing not doing as good yeah, a job as he did. used to. And then he just disappeared for a while. And now he seems to be doing stuff that he loves and mm -hmm. having fun with it and maybe not being super prolific about it. But it, he's he's putting out good stuff now, you know. Well, do you remember that, that big stink that went down? This was probably early 90s, late, 80, late 80s, early 90s, because I was in the service at the time. 
And the the thing came out. I can remember I was buying Comic Buyer's Guide back then. And there was a big article came out and raised a giant fucking stink among the fans. And I think this may have been where popular opinion uh, started to turn on John Byrne. And it was where he came out with a statement that he was going to get out of the trenches. You remember that? I, and, vaguely. And he can't, he, he's, basically what he was saying was that he was done with standard superhero fare. Yeah. You know, as far as working on your, you know, your X-Men, your Superman, whatever. He wanted to kind of rise above the medium. And that's when he started doing things like the uh, prestige format. Uh, OMAC series and things like that but fandom took it basically as you pretentious fuck you know and a lot of people turned on him at that point and I can remember one letter in particular said something to the effect of um, do you mean the same trenches that you know Jack Kirby and Jim Steranko and Neil Adams you know the same trenches those guys labored in is those the trenches you know so his own words kind of sabotaged him. At you the know? same and, time, J- Jack Kirby and Jim Stranko probably would have applauded his decision yes, to rise out of the trenches. Exactly. They were trying to do the same fucking thing in their lifetime and right. career time, right. you know? I mean, Stranko did. I mean, Stranko got out of the trenches. I mean, he didn't stay in com. I mean, if you actually examine the, the body of work that Stranko did... It's a miracle the guy's any sort of comic legend at all because he really didn't do that much. I mean, it's really a small body of work for him to be such a legend in the field, you know? And so Byrne was trying to do something along those lines of of elevating maybe not necessarily a medium, but himself personally. And yeah, I I don't understand why people don't. I just Uh don't understand why people don't want to root for. root for that sort of shit and go, right. yeah, because you know what? If, if somebody's doing that, it doesn't matter. There's still not going to be a shortage of people doing your superhero comics, so don't worry about it, you know? Right. It just won't be John Byrne doing it anymore. And, you know, who knows? You know, bitch, you know I, lo- I love how people like to bitch and moan about things before they're even started, you know, God, just in, yes. the, in the conception phase, you know? I mean... God, yes. So, yeah. You know, and I, you know, back back to Alan Moore. I think he's avoided <laughs> a lot of that by, well, a by being a writer. You know, he can pretty mu- he gets to pretty much now. I imagine just sort of do whatever he wants. My only, honestly, my my only beef with with Alan Moore, besides the thing where I, I do think he has become very pretentious. And all that, but like you say, you know, maybe deservedly so. But my only thing is the thing where where his some of his projects and properties have been picked up and become motion pictures, and he keeps, you know, he's got this thing where where he will not allow his name to be you know connected to the project. What is that shit all about? I you gotta, know? you know what? I gotta say, if I was in his position, I would be the same way. Because I'll tell you this, if you're the kind of person who when you do something artistic, if you are the kind of person who wants it, you know, has, wants your vision to remain intact no matter what, if you're going to give it over to the movies, 
you either have to be involved in the process and fight, 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 and lose, or hand over your baby and watch somebody like cut its arms off and graft like chicken legs onto it and and right. stuff like that. And you know, I don't know if he's got like burned before or if he was just cynical. Oh yeah, about the... you, did you ever see that that Return of the Swamp thing movie? Oh, did he have it? Oh, was that he did? He didn't have anything to do with it, but watch the just watch the opening credits to that movie sometime. Every image, every cover, every panel, everything is from is his from run. his run. And then the movie starts, and it's a fucking atrocity. And, yeah, and you know, so taking just a that low budget movie rubber alone, suit movie. Oh, it it was just it was idiotic. Yet by by watching the credit sequence, you would think that wow, if they right. took this panel image out of this comic, that means they at least you know flipped the pages, which means maybe they should have fucking read the material that they were, you know, drawing on. So, I mean, it's re- that would be really insulting. I mean, I can see him being pissed for something like that. Well, I'll, I'll give him this. He's given up a lot of money <laughs> not having his yeah. name on that on those yeah. movies. It's, you know, he... You gotta respect that. He, you know, he's, 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 he, yeah, he could, he would be getting a lot of money. He is giving up huge... You know, money that would probably on his budget and lifestyle, I, I I picture him living a fairly modest lifestyle, could probably support him for the rest of his life. And he did it because he didn't want his name on something that he didn't do. And nobody, and, and I'll give him points because nobody does that shit anymore. The last no, person who does. really used to do that a lot was uh, this the writer uh, Patty Chayefsky. And the movie being there, and the movie Network, which is a huge, making a huge comeback now. You well, know, I, I he, would argue that Steve Ditko did that as well. I mean, now, granted, I I believe I could be wrong, but I believe he's received his portion of the Spider-Man dough, you know, from the Spider-Man movies. I don't think that he went without money, but at the same rate, he never stepped forward. He never stepped into the limelight that could have been his. Especially, yeah. like, say, when the first movie came out and was such a smash and everything. I mean, just think, of, you know, just the the money you could make from For a guy like that who was probably used DVD, to not making any. Yeah, you know, DVD extra interviews and, you know, being on, you know, fucking Good Morning America and shit like that as the co-creator of Spider-Man. You know, he could have had his 15 minutes and made yeah. a shit ton of money and didn't he you know he's virtually a recluse so yeah you got to kind of respect that i think you know if if you know if you're if you're that that's the way i would be if i was whatever famous. Yeah. if i was famous you'd never see me do an interview you'd i would be like oh my god i'd be living, such a whore. living in my underground you know bunker <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, well, I'm a, already a podcast horse so just only, take that and magnify it by a million if i was any sort of real fucking celebrity and yeah that only only yeah. emerging you know once every few months to to like walk out on my balcony so the photographers could take pictures of me dangling my baby over the edge i was just gonna say just don't dangle any babies oh, it'll be don't my own genetically babies. crafted you know <laughs> baby made out of so my own soul dna well anyway i think we should wrap this up we got a basket 
<laughs> yeah, basket exactly. <laughs> Thanks for tying that tying this uh that ties us up in a nice little uh, knot at the end. Excellent. All right, we'll be right back with some shambling zombie stories. Okay, welcome back to the final portion of Comics Monthly Monday. All you folks that have been uh, telling us you like the long episodes and you want us to do more long episodes, how you like us now? <laughs> you yeah, guys, really. that, yeah, all you guys that have the uh, four-hour uh, commute to work, uh, you, sh- you should be loving this episode. <laughs> well, we're not hitting four hours yet. Come on, oh, man. Oh, give me we'll, time. We'll, give me time. Like our ears will fall off from not having air hit him from wearing headphones for too long for ed- editing these goddamn things. Tell me about it. But uh, but now we get to the final portion, the walking dead portion, and I always look forward to this so much. Like this it. time around, believe it or not, the first comic we are going to cover in this is not an issue of The Walking Dead. <gasps> it is actually image holiday special for 2005 and this was uh just a big old uh what you call it um anthology book one shot type of deal that was published you know holiday season 2005 and uh between pages 86 and 91 it featured a walking dead story now uh it's you know it's done by all the usual suspects robert kirkman charlie adler and uh, cliff rathburn the story is titleless but has come to be known uh basically as the christmas episode or the christmas story so we open to a wintry scene where morgan jones who we and rick met way back in issue one of the walking dead uh chops wood in his yard and inside, all safe and cozy, his son Dwayne reads comic books until his father knocks and the boy unlocks the door and lets him in. And Dwayne asks him about seeing any zombies, and Morgan replies that uh, they've pretty much stopped coming around since the weather turned cold. Dwayne, holding an issue of Invincible by Robert Kirkman, which I thought was really cool, complains that he needs new comics. The ones uh, he has are getting boring because he's read them so many times. So to cheer up his son, Morgan asks the boy to sit down. He's going to give him his Christmas present. And he admits that without a calendar, he really has no idea of knowing when Christmas is anyway. So his son tears in and then shouts, A Game Boy! With batteries! And games! And Morgan snagged it for him while he was out foraging for supplies and cautions uh, his son not to leave the unit on because once the batteries go, that's it. That's all there is. So Dwayne promises that he won't, and he tells his father that he loves him. And, you know, Morgan says, I love you too, son. And then he goes and he throws more wood on the fire. And while he tends to that, he starts to wonder aloud and talk to himself and, and to his son and 
he's basically thinking, you know, if maybe it's time to stop worrying about paying for all the stuff that, you know, they've had to take to survive. And, you know, he says that it's been five months since the beginning of the zombie apocalypse and that they haven't seen a single living soul since, um, since Rick, since their encounter with Rick, you know, since he came around, nothing. Still, stealing stuff, despite all the shit that they've seen and gone through, doesn't set well with Morgan. He's just not that kind of a person. And every time he's out stealing to survive, he wishes a policeman would come along and arrest him, you know, just so that he'd know that they're not the only people left. And then he suddenly realizes the dark places that, you know, his musings are taking him. And he turns to apologize if maybe he's worrying his little son. And his son, lost in his Game Boy, hasn't heard a single word that he said. So, tearing up, Morgan smiles and says, Merry, Qu- Merry Christmas, Dwayne. And that's where the story ends. And I just got to say, you know, I love this story. I really do. You know, here it is. It's set during the zombie apocalypse and all. But I'm a sucker for touching, heartwarming stories like this. Father-son stories, father-child stories, whatever. Um, I'm also a sucker for holiday stories, you know, Christmas stories. And despite the world that this is set in, it's a it's a touching story. I really like it. I love the way it's written. You know, Kirkman again with the very realistic dialogue, and uh, and I think it's fantastic. And uh, I just wanted to point out that uh, you know, back issues of The Walking Dead are ridiculously expensive, depending on uh, at least everywhere I've ever seen. You know, especially the early issues are crazy expensive. However, I picked this one up for a mere two bucks at a local con not long ago. And I think the reason is I think a lot of people aren't aware of this story or of this issue. So if you see it around, you might be able to snag it on the cheap just because it's, you know, it's not an issue of The Walking Dead, despite having that story in the back of it. So keep an eye out for it. What do you think of it? I love this story. And obviously it meant a lot to Kirkman because he was always being a stickler of like, I'm not going to do any flashbacks or, or you know, offside stories. And this is exactly that. It's back in a little bit in time and it's, and it's uh, you know, two characters that we haven't seen that aren't, you know, in the, the main group that we're doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is something he really was sort of saying that he wasn't going to do. <laughs> so like variant covers which he did a variant cover too eventually right. so you know never say never but yeah it's a great story it's a great story great punchline at the end you know and it's nice to just see those two characters because I, I had actually found myself wondering what had happened became of them a few you're times not, you know, you're not the only the, one <laughs> as as the comic was going on so it was, it was nice to see them and it was nice to see that they're surviving and you know in fairly decent shape at this point. Yeah, I, I had the same note actually that uh, you know, despite the request requests from some readers, this is the only you know elsewhere yeah. in the world Walking Dead story you know so far in the series, and the only time we were ever allowed to check back in on any characters that got yeah. left behind, either living or dead. So I yeah. thought that was really cool. I think and that's it's just it's just a nice little moment in time, you know. 
Mm -hmm. It's just a little, it's great, a little self-contained gem. Yep, I really like it. I really like it. And uh, are we ready to go on to the next one here? Sure. All right, so this one is uh, The Walking Dead uh, proper. This is issue number 25, um, cover this time by Charlie Adler, who uh, I believe takes over solidly from this point. I, I believe, if you know, if my memory serves right, that uh, we've sadly seen the last of Tony Moore on The Walking Dead. So that's kind of sad. But uh, Charlie Adler, from here on, I, I think he just gets better and better and better. I, I've come to really, really enjoy his art. And now it's almost kind of funny to look back at the the early Tony Moore issues. And then now suddenly they, they feel awkward or, or kind of strange because we've had Charlie Adler so much longer, longer. than we ever had. Yeah. So uh, we open to Rick and Dale, and this is an unspecified time amount of time after all the theatrics of last issues, you know, dramatic conclusion. Remember that's the one that ended with the, uh, you know, where Rick just kind of snapped and gave his uh, We Are the Walking Dead speech. And they're exploring and securing the newly opened wing of the prison. They still hope to get the generator working, even if intermittently. And Rick wonders about Morgan and his son, what's his name, that they left behind in his hometown back in issue one. And I was like, yeah, whatever happened to them, I wonder. So, at the, you know, basically at the same time this uh, previous story was being uh, published, I, I don't know whether it was coincidence or an intentional nod, but, uh, but Kirkman wrote Rick to be wondering about them just as Morgan was wondering about him. I thought that was pretty cool. So Tyrese a appears around a corner, surprising the pair and damn near getting shot. There's still a lot of tension in the air between uh, Tyrese and Rick. Dale senses this and works to keep them focused and not at each other. So Glenn and Maggie arrive, gloating over the armored riot gear suits that they found, which really gets Rick excited. The couple turns uh, up a bunch of the suits, and Glenn speculates that uh, he might even be able to go foraging again with protection like this. You know, they theorize that if it can stop bullets, surely, you know, old rotten teeth aren't going to be any problem. So Glenn and his girl uh, take the group to the armory and they explore around examining the suits and the weapons and a remark by Tyrese about how much more trouble Dex might have been with, you know, some of this bulletproof headgear kind of pisses Rick off. But again, you know, Dale swiftly intervenes and, you know, keeps the peace between them. Rick's wife, Lori and Carol, Tyrese's ex-girlfriend who tried to off herself a few issues back they have a conversation which, which makes Lori begin to really worry about her friend's state of mind. And Glenn comes up with a plan to have uh, some of the group create a distraction to lure the zombies away from the main entrance. And he and Rick will go out to siphon gas from the cars in the prison parking lot to use in the generator. Uh, but first, Rick... Uh, goes to Alan's grave and has what seems like an actual conversation with Alan who died uh, not long ago and makes us kind of wonder as the readers, you know, is Rick really, you know, is he really going around the bend here? Is he really lost it or losing it? So Carl, Rick's son, he gets really upset when his parents uh, forbid him to join the distraction team. 
and Dale, Maggie, and that dumbass Otis, they make up the distraction team and they walk between the inner and outer fences to lure the zombies away from the gate. And Rick is all set to go. And just when he's wondering, you know, where the hell did Glenn get off to? He comes walking out um, fully outfitted in the riot gear. And Rick dons a spare suit that they bring him. And then they decide to set out. So they hightail it out to the parking lot. And while Rick is watching his back, Glenn goes to work collecting gas. But then something catches Glenn's attention and disbelieving, he asks Rick if Rick sees it too. And on the final page, really great shot where Rick says, holy shit, it's a helicopter. And what an ending to this one. Cause this, there were so many possibilities. Yeah. Because I remember, I don't know if it was in this issue. I, I forgot to go back and read the uh, the letters page for this issue. So I'm not sure if it was, or I'm sorry, not this issue, but a couple issues later. But there, I remember there being a reaction in the letters page to this issue later on where somebody had the same exact thought I had, which was how cool would it be if the people in the helicopter was the pregnant woman in the, in the, in the black cop from Dawn of the Dead? Oh, and that would have been awesome. Yeah, that would have been really cool. You know, I, I don't know I don't if think Kirkman would have gone for that though. But that would have been cool. The fanboys cool. would have loved it, but I think Kirkman would have been like, "Nah, I don't want to tread yeah. on Romero's toes." But yeah, you could tell in this issue it's going somewhere, but you yeah. didn't know where till the final frame, and you still don't really know. Mm-hmm. Classic Kirkman. I liked this issue quite a bit. I really liked the ending. Especially when it came out, I remember uh, being really excited about that because, you know, there's so many possibilities that that opens up. You know, is it is it just a couple of survivors like the end of Dawn of the Dead? Is it a military helicopter? You know, is it a news helicopter? Is it you know, is it Air Force Two? You know, what what is it? You know, it could it could have been anything. You know, and and that was very a very exciting cliffhanger ending for this one. So on to Walking Dead number 26. So Rick and Glenn, you know, they're stunned by the sight of this, you know, an actual helicopter's in the sky. And they try to work out a way to to signal to it when uh, Rick is attacked by one of the undead. But, you know, he's feeling pretty emboldened by this body armor and he takes down the creature. So, you know, crisis averted. They return to, you know, scanning the sky and they realize the helicopter is in some sort of trouble and it looks like it's going to crash. So Rick leaves Glenn to get one of the cars running if he can and runs back to ask Tyrese, who's outside the gate killing stragglers, you know, the, the zombie stragglers, um, that, you know, he tells him that he and Glenn are going to try to drive to the copter. And Michonne comes out and joins them just as uh, Glenn pulls up in a car. And as they drive off, Rick hollers back uh, to ask Tyrese to let Lori know, you know, where he's going off to and to keep everybody safe till they get back. So inside, Lori and Carol are having another chat about, you know, life in their new prison home. And Lori, you know, talks about spreading out within the prison and fixing it up and all this stuff. And, you know, she even goes so far as to say how she and her family are actually starting to feel safe here. And if they get the generator working, you know, maybe they'll even be able to, you know, watch DVD movies from the library and stuff like that. 
As the rescue trio drives toward the crash site, Rick asks Glenn how he was able to, to start the car anyway, and Glenn confesses to having boosted some cars when he was younger, and he hopes that that doesn't you know, taint Rick's view of him with Rick being a former cop and all that. And Rick just has a great line. He says, you know, different world, different time. I, I love that. And he and Glenn, you know, they discuss the fact that you know, with the warmer weather, there seems to be a lot more roamers out and about and that they seem to be almost instinctively drawn to the prison. And they've all, you know, he and uh, Glenn and Michonne, they've all been noticing a buildup in the number of zombies at the fences and decide that when they get back, that they'll have to start using the new riot gear suits and go out and just regularly, you know, kill off and clean away you know, all the undead that are massing at the gate. So just then, uh, Rick notices that the road won't take them where they need to go, so Glenn sets off cross-country in this car, and he jostles the hell out of his passengers, but eventually, you know, that turns out to be a bad move when they get uh, stuck in the mud. So while all that's going on, Dale and Andrea, they officially adopt uh, Donna and Glenn's now-orphaned sons, Billy and Ben, so on foot, approaching the forest area where the uh, copter went down with the sun low on the horizon, the rescue trio, you know, they debate, they debate going into the woods where they figure that the helicopters actually crashed. And Michonne uh, kills a zombie with her katana, and the guys learn that uh, she was neither a ninja or a samurai in the old world. She was actually a lawyer. And she'd been really good at fencing in college. And when everything went to hell, she remembered that her neighbor was some kind of a, a sword nut. And so she just went over there and, uh, and got this katana. And that's that's the origin of, of her, you know, ninja look or whatever you want to call it. And they walk and they talk. And as they close in on the crash site, she convinces Rick to talk with Tyrese when they get back and try to salvage their friendship. And back at the prison, Lori has just learned where Rick has gone off to, and she is pissed. And she's so pissed and worked up, um, you know, remember that she's pregnant, that, you know, something starts happening with the baby. It's acting up inside of her. And uh, she asks Carol to go and find her son Carl for her because it's his bedtime. So she agrees, but first she has to ask Lori a question. And the question is, will she, Lori, and her husband Rick marry her carol and they can throw away the old rules of the old world and all be happy together as some weird <laughs> type of family unit and with that Lori realizes that this crazy bitch has gone completely around the bend so rick and the others arrive at the uh, downed helicopter only to find it's empty and by all the footprints all over the place at the crash site rick realizes that they were taken by someone who's closer than they were. And that's the end of number 26. A very similar ending to 25 with Rick staring off into the distance, only not as happy as in 25. <laughs> I like some of the developments and some of the advancement of character in this one, and especially some of the foreboding. Because anytime somebody says i'm starting to feel safe or i think we're going to be okay that's when you the know shit you're in for trouble yeah yeah 
So I like those moments, but I do distinctly remember being disappointed by this issue when it came out, only because, like you say, it ends in pretty much the exact same spot we left off in the last issue. So, Well, no, the last time they saw the helicopter, <clears throat> now, and he was looking towards the helicopter, now he's at the helicopter and he's looking towards God knows what, you know, the, yeah. somebody, the, the fact that there's somebody close by and... He's not as thrilled with that concept as he was by the concept of the helicopter. It's that's, that's for true. sure. Yeah, that's true. It just it felt to me when I read this originally, and it still does a little bit. Like, uh, you want to know who's in that helicopter? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's what it is. Is it? it it's yeah. It's probably an un, unfair. I was I was very disappointed you didn't find out who was in the helicopter. But. Yeah, yeah. Kirkman yeah. doesn't always give you what you want. He has his he has his own little ideas. It feels like fair. padding, but I don't know that that's really a fair critique or not. You know what I mean? It, it, only because it's it's that old thing of, you know, you get to the end and you just want more. You want more. You want more. So I don't know. There's a lot of times where I'll blow through an issue of The Walking Dead in, you know, like three minutes, you know, when they're brand new issues and get to the end and go, pfft. Well, shit, you know, that that really, that was short. It just didn't do anything. And then you'll go back and reread it and you'll realize, wow, you know, this character advanced, this, ha yeah, there's a lot going on. But because you're enjoying it so much and just always hungry for the next installment that, you you know, sometimes it's easy to get to the end quickly and, and feel like you were, you were shorted or something when really you're not. And this is this issue right here was a classic example of that because, like you say, you're just itching to get to the, you know, to the mystery of the helicopter, and it ends on a on a big tease, pretty much like the the last issue was a big tease of just simply the existence of the helicopter. So, absolutely, it's Anything a very else? it's an X Files ending. It doesn't answer the question, <laughs> and it gives you a new question. It replaces the old question with a new question. This is true. This is true. That's very much a lost ending, too. Or a lost episode. They all did that. They didn't ever answer the damn thing. They just kept asking new questions. Yep. <laughs> all right. Finally, number 27. The last one we're going to cover for this issue, and it's a humdinger. So uh, while Glenn examines the wrecked helicopter and the footprints all around, Rick and Michonne wander off to trace the trail, and they accidentally leave Glenn behind. At the prison, Lori is still reeling from Psycho Carol's uh, proposal of marriage, and she's basically unable to hold back any longer. And Lori lets Carol know how crazy she sounds, which touches off a fight but before they can really get into a full-blown thing about it uh dale and andrea bring the kids back so carol snatches up her little girl and she storms off and andrea asks Lori if carol is okay and Lori must admit that she doesn't believe so not anymore and dale notices that the rescue group is still out there and as the sun sets, Tyrese and Axel stand guard at the gate, awaiting their friend's return. So Glenn uh, nervously catches back up with uh, Rick and Michonne, and they all discuss their options. And with daylight waning and the possibility of a longer walk back to the prison, 
than wherever the mysterious others may have come from, they all agree to press on and follow the trail of footprints in the direction of Woodbury, Georgia. So Carl tries to reassure his mother that, you know, his dad, Rick, always comes back safe. Don't worry. And she smiles and she reassures him and says she's not worried. But after she lies down to sleep, we can see as the readers that her face tells a completely different story. So Axel and Tyrese, they keep watch at the gate and they discuss Rick and the others. And Tyrese confides that he's not so much worried about the others and their abilities you know, after all, Michonne survived, you know, on her own for a long time out there before she met up with these guys. And he says that he does respect Rick and Rick's dedication to the safety of the others. But basically, he's he does kind of reveal that he's worried because he's wondering, you know, what could they have found at the crash site that's keeping them, you know, especially after dark. Um, they have an interesting conversation where Axel reveals that he prefers this new world and the way things are now, you know, where they can call the prison home and he can sleep with an unlocked door and feel safe behind the prison bars. You know, he prefers that to the old world where he was truly a prisoner in the prison. Maggie, meanwhile, goes to her father, Herschel, and she just kind of cuddles up with him because Glenn is still out there. On the road to Woodbury, uh, Glenn remarks on their luck that there don't seem to be any roamers about, but Michonne puts uh, some genuine fear into him with uh, her matter-of-fact manner about them being out there. They're following, and they're growing in numbers the further the group walks. So back at the prison, alone in their cell, Andrea and Dale talk and worry about uh, not only their missing friends, but their new responsibility as the foster parents of Alan's boys. Arriving in Woodbury, the uh, group finds another apparently dead town. So out of options and fumbling around in the dark at this point, they prepare to take down uh, a nearby creature, you know, one of the uh, undead or, or two, chop them up for parts and try to do that smell masking trick that Rick and Glenn employed in Atlanta way back in the early issues. When suddenly all these searchlights snap on, gunshots ring out, and a voice demands that they hit the dirt to avoid uh, getting taken out along with the zombies. So they naturally, you know, they all comply and once the zombies are put down, they're ushered into a walled community and stripped of their weapons you know, and they're told that it's for the sake of the residents. Rick tells uh, a fellow that introduces himself as Martinez that they just want to know what happened to the people in the helicopter. So Martinez, you know, he says he's going to take them to the big man. But the big man, who goes by the title of the governor, he's already approaching them. And he's flanked by armed guards. And he tells Rick... Uh, and the others that he's going to give them the nickel tour. So, uh, I, you know, he kind of naturally identifies Rick as the leader because Rick does most of the talking and he's talking to him. And uh, he even goes so far as he kind of pretty rudely shuts down Michonne when she tries to answer up for some of the questions, you know, about what the group was doing, you know, roaming around after dark out there anyway. But Rick pretty cleverly picks up on the story that she was laying down and uh, says that they've just been pretty much out there walking since the world changed. 
and they saw the helicopter and they just thought they'd go investigate. So the governor says that uh, they are the first new people to arrive in about a month. And they've got about 40 people living in a four block walled off area of the town of Woodbury. So walking as they talk, Rick notices that they're approaching a lighted area and asks what's going on, some sort of baseball game. And the governor replies that his people, uh, his people aren't the only lucky ones tonight. Uh, that Rick and his people showed up on a perfect night. There's a fight tonight. And turning the page, we get this really nice two-page spread of a makeshift arena that used to be a, a dirt track, you know, a, a car racing track. And it's filled with all these zombies that are tethered to poles. And closing out the issue, I'm just going to read you a little bit of the dialogue here because this is the best way to close this out. So we get Rick uh, looking at the arena and he says, so what? He says, you, say, you make the zombies fight each other? And the governor says, zombies? He says, no, a, a biter fight ain't no kind of entertainment. We got real live people going into that circle. Two enter, they beat the hell out of each other, put on a good show. Biters are just extra motivation. And Rick says, you serious? And the governor turns to him and he says, I'm sensing a bit of disapproval, stranger. In case you ain't noticed, the cable's out. Ain't a whole lot of, uh, ain't a whole lot in the way of entertainment to be had. People get restless without entertainment. Rick says, you fence this, you fence off this area, make it safe, and then cart in a pile of roamers for entertainment. Not very safe, governor. And the governor replies, at first, yeah, we had a few accidents. Once we started feeding them, though, they got pretty docile. Not much of a threat now. Rick says, wait, you're feeding them? What the hell are you feeding them? And on the great last page, we get the just a, the, the governor's a complete, just creepy looking dude anyway. Very, very kind of skeezy looking. He looks like Tom Savini. <laughs> yeah, he does. He really does. And he's given Rick a smirk and a look, and he just says, Well, stranger, we feed them strangers. Yeah. And you talk about an eerie freaking ending, just a, a, a spine-chilling Well, ending. his line before that was telling his guy, Close the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I skipped over that, and I probably shouldn't have it. Yeah, right after he says, uh, after we started feeding him, they got pretty docile. And then he says, uh, Bruce, close that door, please. So, yeah, you definitely <laughs> have a feeling that something, yeah, yeah. Something's not good at all, at not all. Not at all. Rick Maybe Tom his... Savini will play the governor in that the TV would be show. Great. That would be fucking awesome. That would be great. I Oh, I would totally If be anybody's listening, please put Tom Savini in as the governor. Oh, my God. It would be so fucking perfect. But, if I'm oh not, my God! What a string of issues! Now you saw those those pictures online, right? Didn't I send you that yes. that link or whatever? I, I if I'm not mistaken, I thought that somewhere in that link it said that they were actually filming in the Atlanta area. I've got to do some checking into that shit because I would love to go be a fucking extra. If, if it keeps going, they're going to need extras galore, dude. Yeah, that's galore. what I was talking to my wife about that today because you know, I mean, this is the freaking zombie apocalypse, so they're going to need you know thousands. I'm telling of people. you. If if they if if that ever happens, if there's a casting call, I'll come down to Atlanta so two true freaks can be zombies in The that Walking Dead. That oh, would I wonder be if they would let us wear our awesome. t-shirts. Where uh, are we could t-shirts. probably we could probably talk them into it. We'd probably have to 
fuck them up. <laughs> we probably have to take the t-shirts like a month before and leave them outside and let them rot and fucking <laughs> throw some uh, raw they do all that shit with them. makeup. They do all that like like distress stuff with But makeup. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. If we show up at the set all pre-distressed, we'll make a lot of people happy that they won't have to spend time <laughs> distressing us. I'll tell you that, right? We'll make it easy on them because goddamn, that would be fucking I missed my chance to be in Land of the Dead as a zombie. I missed the casting call for that. They had an open casting call for zombies to all come walking out of the the lake at the and toward the end of that movie. And it was freezing cold too when when it happened and I would have fucking done it in a heartbeat. It was only a, like a 2-hour drive from here too. Dagnabbit. <laughs> but man, I this now we're getting into one of the just greatest plots in the in the walking dead so far the whole governor deal and it it's yeah <laughs> it's obviously going deeper and darker yeah as we, as we go along and, yeah it and really I, does I, I love this because the thing is we're, we've been doing like three or four or five issues at a time but people were starting to get a little antsy that of something happening in this because there were quite a few issues of them just in the prison and st- things were happening but it was not really a lot of like zombie action so people were like oh, where's this going they're in this prison is it going to be a whole drama here and here's where people started going okay you asked for it here you go <laughs> so, something's happening you wanted something to happen now something's happening and uh and oh man it's great when 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 you don't read it as a month by month thing you know it happens at such a speedy pace you know compared to when you were waiting a month in between every installment and uh i love in these three issues how you get to see step by step a little each issue how fucking crazy carol is yeah and and the scene where she you know she proposes the marriage and stuff like that that's quite a bit of like out of left field writing, but it makes perfect sense. And the way she's drawn, like the like, you could tell she's just she's got that crazy girl. Her eyes are like wide and kind of glassy, and it, it's you can not sense the desperation on her that she really needs someone committed to just like grip onto her, right. to keep her in reality and in san in in what is left of her sanity. You know, she seems to be one of those people who's always defined herself by other people. Other people, yeah. Which is not it, a good trait to have in zombie apocalypse world. Because I would, I would disagree that it comes out of left field only because the issue before, and I kind of skimmed past it quick because I was trying to keep these synopses short, as short as possible, but still give the relevant information. But the conversation that they'd had in the prior issue that, that made Lori very nervous was... You know, you know, I don't want you guys to hate me. And she says, right. oh, no, we and love she's, you. And we she love goes, you. Oh, I'm and so glad you guys love me. Yeah, I it's love compl- you she realizes it's a complete mistake to have told this girl that she loved that. her. She meant it. Yeah. You know, we love you as a friend or we love you as yeah. a as a fellow human being. And sh- and this woman is so desperate for affection and, and the, needing somebody that she yeah. takes it as, you know, I, I love you. And yeah, it's yeah, she's not right. She's and, not uh, right at all. Yeah, and uh, but when I say coming out of left field, you just 
you don't see a story like that where someone proposes something like that, you know? I mean, Lori right. reacts very naturally to, like, how, to like the reader. She's the reader at the point. Where, what the hell? What? <laughs> no way. <Yeah>. No. <laughs> Well, she no. then she even says, you know, I'm I'm from this small, you know, little town, you know. What the hell did yeah. you? How did you think I was going to react? You know, I this is not natural. Yeah, and I mean, I know people who maybe in that situation might have gone like, you know, what the hell, you know. But no, not Rick and Lori, uh-huh. you know, and yeah. uh, and it shows just how out of touch with reality Carol is, and uh, and I like also how the whole place gets very nervous when um rick's gone mm-hmm. and tyrese might not like that sort of even after their big fight and rick's being voted down you know when they go off to to investigate the helicopter tyrese is like you want me to go and rick's like no you stay here and hold down the right you know basically hold down the fort we might be coming back with company and then there's a shot of Tyrese's face looking like kind of pissed. And then there's just a shot of his leg and his arm holding a hatchet dangling there. It's uh, kind of uh, does illustrating Forboding, that maybe, yeah. yeah, that Tyrese might not be that, you know. And But we're also seeing that, okay, Rick was voted down as their leader. But you just can't help rick just can't help being the leader when he's They're gone, still deferring to him yeah everybody's worried about him when the when he shows up when the governor grabs him the governor sees right away this guy's in charge you know rick is just in charge whether rick wants it or not whether they want it or not rick is in in charge you know he's just somehow manifested that role that is entirely necessary and you know, there's definitely Tyrese at the same point could definitely be the same kind of person to manifest that role. He and Rick are very similar. They're both very intelligent and very strong willed and very willing to do what they got to do. And they're both also very, uh, you know, they're also not immune to having their emotions completely take and take over them and have them do dangerous and stupid things. <laughs> so they're very for the, so it's they're very similar, you know. And that's always in alpha male land. That's always a, a a strong and dangerous, volatile combination. Right. And Kirkman's stirring it all up to a fine froth here and then throwing the monkey wrench in it with the governor who all of a sudden, you know, might, you know, take take out, you know, a whole bunch of the, the strongest you know, it's not looking good for three of the strongest members of the group. Now, once again, something uh, that's shown in uh, this last issue, twenty-seven, that never fails to s- just literally send a shiver down my spine is. Uh, unfortunately, the pages are not numbered, but it's where they're walking and they have to make a decision. All right, are we going to forge on, or are we going to try to go back to the prison? And they decide to keep going. And there's a sign that says Woodbury one mile, Fayetteville thirty one, and Atlanta fifty three. Now Fayetteville is where our buddy Mike Bailey lives. So this oh. puts this puts the town of Woodbury about an hour, hour and a half, more or less, from where I live. Now is there actually that's a Woodbury? too close? <laughs> yeah, you know act- what? I, I looked it up. There is a Woodbury, Georgia. 
So we got to I... go there and kill the governor. <laughs> well, you know, I looked up, um, what was that place they hold up at for a while? Wil Wilshire Estates or something like that? I tried to look that up back when we covered that issue, and I don't believe that place really exists. But this town here, and I have no idea if it really looks like or has the same population number that is shown in this issue, but there is a Woodbury, Georgia, so kind of kind of scary. Kind of scary. Funny. I love the shot where they're walking into the town, and... You know, this is something you don't see in comics very often where you get actual real things because, you know, like in Superman, for example, if they go to the Walmart in Superman's world, then it's like Lexmart, you know. But here we actually see both a McDonald's and a Walmart, and I thought that was really cool. You know, it, it just adds that touch of realism. Yeah, it's that Stephen King. Stephen King was the one who, like, started yeah. doing that. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing does. It reminds me of uh, of the stand when I see stuff like you know they're walking in and it's it, the town is clearly yeah. post apocalypse. You know, it's completely deserted and I love it. I love it. I, I enjoyed this issue very much. This storyline, I both enjoy it and hate it at the same time because only because it is so uncomfortable. It's horrible. It's yeah. horrible. <laughs> it's creepy. This guy. I don't want to give away too much, but he's scum. He's a bad man. He's Governor's bad. a bad man. Also, Chris, don't uh, don't let me forget, hold my feet to the fire on this. When we get further into this story, when we pass a certain point in this storyline, uh -huh. I do have a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, just a beef with with one thing that happens and I, I want to make sure that I come back to it and I'll, I'll try to remember because some, something happens and at the time it happened I was like okay this is going into comic book cliche land I fear and it actually turned out to happen and it's it's one of the few criticisms I've ever had for this title one of the few things that ever happened that I, I thought was a bit of a misstep on uh, on Kirkman's part. So when we when we get there, <laughs> I want to remember. I want to try, try to remember. remember yeah. I'll remind you of the fly in the ointment. I'm sure you'll remember when you read it again too. Yeah, I'm sure that'll I, bring yeah, it. Sure. Well, I'm my sure. last note on this is I love Axel. I just love Axel. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, really, I like how he just plainly says this. It's, life is better for me. <laughs> right. You know. The outside world might as well have been filled with zombies for Axel, you know. So now at least he doesn't, you know, he's not living under the microscope of prison. He's living like a quote-unquote free man. And, you know, people who are in prison for long periods of time, you know, they become used to prison. So he's in almost a sort of twisted heaven. And I thought that was a great twist to it especially since Axel is really just a likable character he's blunt honest and you know I just I just love his character he's one of my favorite characters and as in later issues you start noticing in the mail that other people were big Axel fans too yeah you know? and uh he's such a minor character but I I just I, I love every scene that he's in I love the way you know, his perspective on things. I think one of the signs of a truly extraordinary writer 
is when there's a large cast like this book's got, yet the writer is able to remember what the deal is with each character, you know, where they're coming from, what they've experienced, and, and particularly what they have not experienced. Yeah. And something that never occurred to me, and Axel comments on it, was that he's never spent a moment outside the gate, you know, since this happened. So for him, it's almost academic. You know, he's never been on the other side. Like these yeah. other, the, all these other people are survivors of you know, of the apocalypse, and he's not. He was inside the whole time, safe and sound. Yeah, and I, that was just down, a he's great, moving up. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great observation, you know? It's so simple, but it's something that, you know, just never really occurred to me before that, yeah, for this guy, <laughs> ain't so bad. You he, know? He, well, he's in prison. He's used to being in prison, and now the outside world has come to him. Right. Into, into his world. And now his world has been also changed into where most everybody's gone, which takes out the date. Yeah, he's just, it's its less dangerous probably and more relaxed. He can sleep, he says, I can sleep with my cell door open. You know, that's right. a huge, that's huge a big thing. Deal. He, can get, he can get up and walk out at any time he wants at this point. You know, it would be foolish to do so, but its it's now... He actually has an, that opportunity in front of him, <laughs> ironically enough. But um, I'm just digging it more and more. Yeah, keeps getting better and better, and and even the art, the art gets better and better, and uh, it's it's like you said, it's uh, when 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 we started off with a, a, a we've, well we've had this artist longer than Tony Moore. And, uh, you know, I was like, ah, oh, this Adler guy, he's a little sketchier. You know, it's a little sketchy sort of style. But I can't imagine it any other way now. I love it, you know. Right. It works, it works perfectly for me, and, and it's, you know, defined the look of the comic. So, and I think, yeah, as each issue goes on, he... he as Kirkman is able to stay inside the heads of each character, he's also able to stay inside the heads of them and keep them all looking um, distinct from each other. And, I mean, his facial expressions are just priceless. He's it, it, a master yeah. of conveying undercurrent of, of dialogue or emotion just by a, a look on someone's face. And it's a look on that person's face, you know. As you know, the characters, you, you start to read their facial cues. It's just awesome. It, it took him a while, but yeah, he, he got there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dale, it's, I yeah. love the way he, I love the way he, um, you know, like when Dale, like there's a scene in here where he's in, he's in bed with Ed, Andrea and they're talking. And he just sort of smiles and he's laying back and he's smiling. And you can tell he's got that loose, like floppy double chin. Right. The way the you know the way he's laying there and his double chin's just sort of like black. You know, he looks like an old guy with you know four days of stubble, and uh, it, it, it's great. And and I mean, it's just such a small thing that you know the way a smile would affect the the fat in his face while he was laying down, but it just 
draws you it, 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 it draws you into the realism of it you know it I, I, <laughs> I love you Kirkman <laughs> I think we need to get yeah get going the faster we get out of here the faster we can start reading the next issues of everything which are all gonna be good Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Twotruefreaks.libson.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. You can find me, Scott Gardner, both on Twitter and Facebook. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T. G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcasts.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening. Join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks.
Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.